The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the MJ Cast. It's Saturday, the 3rd of December. I'm Jamin Bull and I'm here with my co-host Q. This is the Dangerous Philosophies of Michael Jackson special with Elizabeth Armisu and Karen Merckx, editors of the Journal of Michael Jackson Academic Studies and hosts of the Michael Jackson podcast, The Dream Lives On. Elizabeth, in particular, is author of the amazing academic book, The Dangerous Philosophies of Michael Jackson, His Music, His Persona, and His Artistic Afterlife. She holds a master's in early modern English literature from King's College London and is co-founder and editor of the Journal of Michael Jackson Academic Studies. Karen Merckx is a classically trained professional musician with a master's in cultural studies and art history. She is also an author and artist who collaborated with Elizabeth on the cover of the Dangerous Philosophies book. Let's not forget, she also works over at the Journal of Michael Jackson Academic Studies and somehow within all of this has found time to also co-host the Dream Lives On podcast with Elizabeth. Ladies, welcome to the MJ cast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, believe me, as a, a distant admirer of everything you guys do over at the Journal and also on uh, your podcast, it's an absolute honor and pleasure that finally we get to join together and, and do a show. Oh, me too. I was like so buzzed the first time I heard my name mentioned on the MJ cast. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it felt uh, the same way for Q and I when we heard ourselves mentioned yes. uh, on your show. It's always like, oh, my. Uh, the, yeah, the first time I heard my name, I, I literally just like jumped. I was like, oh, my God, someone <laughs> mentioned me. That's crazy. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's a joy to talk to you. Thank you. And it's super. It's I always find it really, really uh, strange and interesting when I'm talking to somebody whose voice I'm listening to all the time because I listen to all your guys' episodes. So now that we're actually interacting and I'm asking you a question and you're speaking back to me, it's just, it's, I felt the same way when we were talking to Darren Hayes. It's just a really, really weird and creepy, crazy experience, but really cool. <laughs> it's, it's so cool that you interviewed better. Darren Hayes. Uh, he's a great yes, guy. He's, 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 he's just amazing. a big time Michael Jackson fan. And he used to, I don't know if you guys used to listen to his show, but he used to have a podcast way before he did his current, oh, well, he has a, a film review show now. And before that, he had a comedy one. But back in the day, like two years ago, he used to have a podcast called The Talk, Talk, Talk Show. And there were like shows on that dedicated completely to Michael Jackson. And I don't know where they are anymore. Aww. They don't exist anymore. Like he got, mm. the show's gone, but man, were they amazing. That's how I found out he was a super mega MJ fan. That's such a shame. Like I know... There's a funny thing with me and Darren Hayes because his partner used to be one of my lecturers at university. Oh, wow. No, so cool. really? Yeah, his That's... his other half. Yeah, and <laughs> I remember two or three years later they were like, "Do you know your 
teacher married uh, Dionese. I was like, no freaking way. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, incri- that's no crazy. way. And he had, he was. And if all of the faculty was at the wedding and stuff. Um, but I love his album, This Delicate Thing We've Made. I think that's one of the best albums and most underappreciated albums ever created. Yes. It is great. And by the way, Very Q is here. Hi, Q. Sorry, just ignoring you there. That's okay. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I feel bad. No, it's okay. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I was listening. I love listening in the corner. <laughs> no, that's so true. That's such a, a magnificent opus of an album. I love that work from Darren. It was amazing. I just can't understand why it wasn't more appreciated and yeah. I read an interview with him where he was like, maybe I just went a bit too far. But I don't no. think he did. I think Not it was at all. perfect. No, I, I think that's a trend amongst a lot of your solo material is that it's underappreciated. And um, it's a real shame yeah. because even his his recent album, um, Secret Codes and Battleships, is just, I play that all the time. I love it. Yeah. Uh, that that one is my favourite and his best, I think. Yeah. I, I think agree. it's the Savage Gardens stuff people couldn't get past that because it was like so how big people, like how people can't get past thriller mm. yeah that's, yeah that's the oh, benchmark gosh, and yeah. that's the thing that's the highest up on the horizon so that's yeah. all they sort of see but isn't it amazing that like michael jackson had three careers really like in the jackson five the jacksons and as a solo artist and was able to go to greater heights in each instance it's you know, he was able to go past what public perception was of his, you know, work in the previous or prior uh, format and take it even higher. It's amazing. That's, that's ma- that makes him special. Also yes. stand out in the whole Jackson family. He was apparently the one with an amazing talent in the first place, but also very, very dedicated and worked hard and a very learned man. Yeah. In in many different ways. And um, if you're an artist and you have your dream, you want to expand. And that's exactly what he did. So I think that um, was a person that would like, that, that did his, his job uh, in the Jackson 5 and the Jacksons. But already in Motown, he had a leading position. This was definitely someone who wanted to grow. Mm. And when he met uh, Q, Quincy Jones. <laughs> the other yeah. Q. Yeah. Not me, <laughs> the, other, yeah, the other Q, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Q, you met MJ? It's also... Oh, well, actually, I did And then you met Q, but... and that was it. <laughs> yeah. It just changed the whole thing. And that changed everything, yeah. <laughs> so I think he had a very clear sense of where he wanted to go and did everything to grow. As an artist. Mm. And nothing was going to stop him. Nothing was no, going to get in his way. No. He no, was like a juggernaut. Juggernaut. Perfect. Yeah. He really was. He yeah. was not going to be stopped. But it is remarkable. And it's so remarkable that, you know, one of the funny, funnest thing we did, funnest, funnest is not a real word. <laughs> um, if you can say it, it's a real word. Um, we did um, like a, a biography of Michael's life for the companion to Michael Jackson's studies. And then we published it in Dangerous Philosophies mm. as well. 
and it was amazing how much was in that life 50 years because mm. we compared it to a lot of different other people so i compared it to like shakespeare's companion arthur miller michael just lived like three or four different lives in that one existence yeah, yeah. yes yeah that's a good way to yeah. think about it he lived so many lives in that short time he really did. He lived. He lived many lives, but if you look further into him, and that's what we do, <laughs> then you see that he was not just a musician and a performer and a dancer. He was so, so much more, and that makes him so interesting to study, anyway, in the first place. And um, I think that even if he would have, say, Thriller was the best-selling album. And then he got bad. And after that, he would have decided, okay, that was a nice career in music. Now let's start something else. He, would, he could have become a filmmaker or even a visual artist. Yeah, well, there definitely was a trend throughout his career where he was trying to edge more towards into filmmaking. He was always trying to get into that. Um, yeah. And it's almost like he wasn't, life didn't permit him or allow him to, to get into that area as much as he wanted to, which is a real shame, I think. So many artists that are successful for one thing wanted to be something else. Hmm. So many singers wanted to be actors. So many successful actors wanted to be musicians. Yeah. It's a strange but, thing. But, but it's not only that. Uh, most of them are. If you look at um, uh, someone like David Bowie, David Bowie was a trained visual artist, but he became a musician. So you see this... Often, and I think a lot of artists, uh, Michael included, are more than just one thing. But but what Jamin was saying was about, you know, the kind of ways Michael's career, his filmmaking career, kind of got derailed. Derailed. There was always like a roadblock that came up just about when it was that door was about to open. Someone would brick that doorway up. I think there's some good stuff in making Michael on it. Yes. Yeah. I know Michael made some not so great decisions as well. Like with Captain EO, I don't think he did the premieres and stuff. Yeah. Some of the promotional stuff. And they paid him so much for that picture. I think you can really easily get blacklisted in Hollywood. Mm. You know, even if you're Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's another thing. Um, you can be on top of your game in music because you did this since you were born. <laughs> and then you want to go into filmmaking. But you have to start at the bottom. You can't start at the top. So I don't know what role that played in his career. If um, if that if he was able to to, to take a step back and then go into filmmaking, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. He was amazing in The Wiz. I love The Wiz. Yes. love. Oh, my God, what a performance. I uh, know so that it just screened in London at a film festival of some sort, actually, just last week, I think. Yeah, yeah I think Charlie and Samar were going to it, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. In BFI? Maybe. Maybe. So, so this actually is the first time we get to interview both Elizabeth and Karen, 
but you guys interviewed us already over <laughs> yeah. at the journal. And thank you for that opportunity, by the way. That was yeah, amazing. That was You're very welcome. So good. And we love doing it. And um, so now the tables have turned. <laughs> and today we get to interview you both, which is very exciting. And I just want to say I adore the, the podcast that you guys do, The Dream Lives On. I love it. Uh, and Thank and you. I, I just wanted to say, I think I will put a note down that I don't want to forget to say something like this because I think you mentioned after we did the uh, Dangerous 25 roundtable, Elizabeth, that we sort of provided a playground for people to sort of discuss all these ideas. And I sort of had always had this little analogy which involved you guys and like the, the MJAS and the Dream Lives On. That's like it's my Michael Jackson University. It's like our <laughs> it's it's like our MJ Academy, and it's it's my school of Michael Jackson and Karen and Elizabeth. They're like my teachers. They school me. They school me on MJ concepts and interpretation and complexities and depth that's not been previously considered by me. Then for us, the MJ cast. We're like the lunch break. We're like the cafeteria. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, the, the cafeteria, the on-campus cafe. That's the time that we catch up with the news and the gossip. Well, not really gossip, but the news and, and all the discussion with our MJ friends. And we discuss what we've learnt. And then Jenkins of Moonwalk Talks, he's like the funny substitute teacher and, <laughs> and he sort of educates through like exciting and new avenues. So that's sort of how I sort of view this this great little community. That's it's a lovely our, analogy. Thank you. Yeah. But I just wanted to say that I even wrote the note, like make sure I mention that because, yeah, I, I really admire and I love whenever there's a new episode and it's usually when I'm driving and, and I'm always like, oh, my God, I wish I could, like, write this quote down or something <laughs> like this, but I can't because I'm driving to work. Or So, yeah, but thank you for what you do. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We really we love that you are enjoying the show and that you're learning stuff. Very much. And, oh, my um, God. Because I always see it's like the BBC Four. I don't know if you have BBC Four in Australia, no. but it's like the boring version of BBC where people just talk <laughs> about stuff and point to statues. Yeah, in Holland, this is um, Channel Three. Channel Three. Wow. Yeah, it's, more, like, it's more the the the, in, uh, the art and the documentary kind of stuff. Oh. It's not even Discovery but, Channel because that's quite exciting no, no, no. now. No. So yeah. for us, no, it's no, been, no, 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 like, no. Discovery Channel, no. ABC. National Geographic. We no, have it's SBS. Like BBC Four. BBC Four. Yeah. Oh, SBS. <laughs> yeah, SBS is our sort of, I guess, version like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, let's. We could start. So, firstly, wanted to say a uh, good evening to you both because it's evening. So, thank you for staying up late. Um, or, or Karen, good afternoon, Karen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. But nice, you know Dutch. Oh, only a little tiny bit, so donkey mm. bell. Are she believed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got married in Holland. I got married in, in um, Rotterdam. Oh. Yeah, I love, nice love, love, love the Netherlands so much. Whereabouts are you from? Actually, you know what? Let's let's do the first questions because that will cover that, actually. So <laughs> okay. we'll start now. So um, we're going to ask sort of, yeah, like, you know, 
about where you're from and sort of where you were growing up as kids and that sort of stuff. So who would like to go first? I think Karen should go first. Yes, because I want to know where you're from. Uh, Well, I'm from Holland. Yes. I was born in uh, a city in the middle of uh, the Netherlands, Nijmegen. And, um, wow, yeah, uh, after that we moved to the north of Holland, just above Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. Heemstede. And then I moved again again somewhere else. else. So I moved a lot in my youth to other places. And I ended up in Amsterdam, where I studied music at the Academy of Music in Amsterdam. Wow. At that time it was uh, Sweding Conservatorium. And um, so I started my music career. And um, in 2004, I started with uh, university uh, cultural studies did my master's, and now I'm working on my PhD. You're so busy. (laughs) So Um, much going on. (laughs) So busy, my God. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, it's it's nice to do. It's not busy, no. I don't see it as busy. Yeah. What what point did you move to London, to England, like later in your life or like earlier on? Uh, Yeah, I know. I moved here. A year ago. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Year? So yeah, recent. A year ago. September huh. 2015. She fell in love. Oh. So that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long distance is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> then you make weird podcasts over uh, in, in the car and stuff. <laughs> you need to be in the same studio. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'm not moving for you, Jamin. Sorry, no, that's that's fine. We can we can continue this, and then I I do want to occasionally get together in Brisbane or whatever and do stuff. That would be awesome. Yeah, that would be really good. So I'm not moving for you, Jamin. <laughs> fine. Just built a house. Not moving. Yeah. Um, and Elizabeth, how about yourself? Oh, I was born in Islington, in North London. That's on Monopoly. (laughs) That is on Monopoly. Oh, my God, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Not Park Lane. Um, So it was really inner city, inner city life. And um, I was kind of born into kind of a second generation immigrant family, Nigerians from south of Nigeria and um, I had a massive love of Michael Jackson from a very very young age and um, I won't go into the details of my childhood but it was a bit rough so so I'll just (laughs) just say it was a bit rough Um, so I really found that my Michael Jackson fan and my like love of his short films and his work was just something really comforting throughout my youth and so from about the age of two three you know I was I was at that age where I where for me Michael wasn't 
you know, there's an age where you you don't have a distinction between what's in the television and what's in real life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it was so formative for me. And so as I grew older, I had a very rocky relationship with my parents and I'm estranged from them now, which is a very positive thing, if you can believe that. Um, <laughs> I ended up going to British boarding school. I was really good at school. I was just really bright. And I got a scholarship to a British boarding school. And it was like a bit of a Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, awesome. <laughs> off to Hogwarts. Where Harry goes off to Hogwarts at 11. Um, and I went to boarding school in Sussex. And I spent the rest of my school there, school age there. And my Michael Jackson, my Michael Jackson appreciation was just a very core part of my life. But I didn't have really any friends who were also big fans of Michael Jackson or anything like that. It was just me. And when I was around about 12, 13, I got all the albums at once, which was kind of amazing. Mm. That's, and um, so when I was 18, I went to university. I was an emancipated adult. <laughs> And I did a degree in drama, film, and creative writing. And there's a little story you might not know, but I was supposed to do medicine. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I got into lots of medical schools and everything. But I escaped at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> I was no doctor. No doctor. She's a writer. She's okay. definitely a writer. <laughs> born, born writer. But I think... The important thing is for me, for Michael, Michael Jackson, is that when I, when he died, I was, gosh, was I 21? It was really one of those moments. I'd just finished my degree and when he died, it was just such a powerful thing in my life that, I've said this in interviews before, I didn't really process it very well. Um, and then I started a teaching career, which was very intense. Um, and then about five years into my teaching career, I had a burnout, which, you know, so common in teaching. I had several friends burn out before I did. I was the last one to go. <laughs> <laughs> the longest wick. The longest but the the beautiful thing is the time I took off to start a master's degree at King's and pick myself up, Michael was really pivotal in that process because as I grieved for him, as I was also doing my master, I got the inspiration for this amazing academic book on him and his life. And it was very much a healing process for me, like spiritually and um, personally. And I found that through that grief process, you know, there was, a, there was diamonds there. Mm. And that's very typical of working with Michael. Yeah, so that's my story. Thank you, Elizabeth and, and Karen. And just before we move on to talk a little bit more about Michael Jackson, I did, I did want to dive back just a little bit further. And I know, Elizabeth, you in particular – 
you do have this love of literature, don't you? And I want you to, I want you to talk to us a little bit about where that stems from and what, what were some of your early experiences with literature and how did your love for, for writing develop? Well, I would always, I always saw myself as like Roald Dahl's Matilda. Fantastic. <laughs> and if you've read Matilda. Mm. <laughs> but when I read that book, I must have been about seven, six, seven. It really reminded me of myself because although I was taught to read, I must have been taught to read, people from my childhood were always telling me that I just read like as, as soon as I could pick up books, I was picking them up and trying to read them. And at one point I was like reading the newspaper because that was what was in the house. <laughs> so although I wasn't born into an environment where that was appreciated, I was like reading at three, wow. which is really early. So I kind of came into this world wired for words. But being an author, for so many people, it's not seen as a practical life choice. And so you, there's a sense that I have to, you have to fight for that, for the right to be an author mm-hmm. and say you're an artist. So for me, literature was a companion, the same way in Matilda it's she loves the libraries and she loves the words. For me, I could kind of escape into fantastical worlds. And I, from the age of about 11, I was exposed to Romeo and Juliet for the first time. And I just fell in love with Shakespeare. I've never not been reading and reading and reading. <laughs> it's, um, I think if you cut me, Words will pour out. <laughs> <laughs> that will be really messy. So no. <laughs> never get them back in the right order. Nobody no. try that. No. <laughs> Just to check. Wow. Um, and Karen, like, how did you discover your love of art? And like, your your you don't just have a love of visual art, but, you you know, musical art. So you've got a love of a huge sort of broad stroke of art. How did that come about? Oh, well, I have many loves in my life, music, visual art, and also literature, Uh, the library is growing, but um, yeah, also from a very, very young age, my grandfather had, um, well, I always say I come from a violin family, (laughs) they were playing the violin or cello, and um, so I was always with music music was always in my in my life and um, I had this dream from a very young age I want to become a musician and um, at one point I don't know what age it was but they they tried to give me a violin under my chin and it didn't fit (laughs) (laughs) and an instrument needs to fit you the instrument needs to fit you like a glove and if it doesn't then will not work um, so if you have a child that says I want to play this then you better uh, want to play cello or want to play flute or whatever then go for that because they know exactly what matches them and if you force them into something else it doesn't work 
So at one point, the violin didn't do it for me. I now know that the double bass does. But I think it was, I was nine and I heard a flute and I was gone. I knew immediately that's the instrument I want. I had to wait for a long time because also my youth was rough. So I had to wait for a long time. And then I got this instrument when I was 18 or something. And within three years, I was able to go to the Academy of Music. Yeah, and so I did that. I, at the same time, I had a love for art. So you could always find me in a museum or with my nose in art books, uh, always drawing. And um, I had to make a choice, but music was stronger. And um, one day, well, I had, I had a lovely, lovely teacher in a music school. And she said, okay, you want this, I prepare you. And she prepared me. She came back every Saturday or she stayed some an hour longer to prepare me for an, an entrance exam and she did this and uh, I got in and um, yeah well I became the flutist I wanted to be and uh, at the same time I um, never mentioned this to my father so at one point I came home and I said well now you can congratulate me for what? He said, you already did your uh, driver's license. I said, no, man. I'm, I'm uh, admitted at the uh, uh, Academy of Music. What? And, um, well, I'm not going to pay. I said, you don't have to because I, <laughs> I already sorted that one out also. So, bye. And off I went. <laughs> <laughs> cool story. And, um, yeah. So I did music for a long time, played in, in ensembles and um, made music theater for children, which was a big lo love. And um, then art came in again. And I really, really uh, yeah, I learned a lot from someone who taught me a lot. And I went to the Art Academy, the Rietveld Academy, for um, an optional training where I learned 17th century painting from a model. So someone is sitting there and then you draw them and then you put it on a canvas and you start painting. And you get these nice 17th century Rembrandtesque paintings. And um, yeah, then I thought, okay, uh, I oh, then I became a graphic designer. That's also because I had a burnout from teaching in a music school. And I thought, okay, I have to stop this. I had some private uh, students and um, I moved away from Amsterdam also. And then I started my career as a graphic designer. Then I went into art and now I'm illustrating. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And you say you're not busy. <laughs> um, oh, well, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> Wow. They're constantly yeah. looking at ways to have more time. That's that's where it is right now. It's like so I gave up TV. I literally gave up TV just to have more hours in the day. Wow. We don't watch TV anymore. No. No. Well, yeah, we that's don't. one way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of the TV. 
<laughs> I make long days. <laughs> It's like 4 a.m. Yeah. Most days. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, before I went to the next question, as you were just talking, I was thinking, Karen, like as a musician, do you play Michael music at all? I did on flute. Mm -hmm. I also did it, um, 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 arranged some music for, for uh, uh, children I taught. Based on Michael's nice. work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah, you have books. There are books there. Um, With this music, people can play them for That's, guitar, or for piano, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I've often seen those like walking past music stores. So I'll often have like a, a Michael uh, sheet music book in the window of like you know yeah, the, yeah, his, yeah. the history album or or something like that. That must be. I've always thought I've admired anyone that can play an instrument, um, and that just must be amazing. You know, to be able to you know play along or make an arrangement of Michael's music, that would be such a gift. Incredible. It is. It is. It is a gift. And um, the amazing thing is, is that nowadays a lot of, because when I studied classical music, pop music was kind of not done. And now you see that a lot of classically trained musicians play Michael Jackson. And in a, such an amazing way they take it to a completely other level and you hear the complexity of his music which is amazing really amazing karen did a whole course on him she was so inspired by all these musicians mm. she did a whole course on it people love to learn about michael jackson and classical music yeah. the big names that we've sort of seen across uh, youtube would be like Is it Peter, uh, Bentz. Peter Bentz playing yep. his amazing yep. arrangements? Amazing. Oh, my well, God. So yeah. good. And, and, yeah, just I stuff found, like I that. I found so more. Great. I found more. And it's really, really. There was even um, a string quartet of young people, really young people. And they play so good and so beautiful. How old were they? Uh, they must have been about around 11. Hmm. What were they playing? Smooth Criminal? As in, uh, yeah, Smooth Criminal. Yeah. Oh, I know the ones you're just talking about. It's like the coolest little kids you've ever seen in your life. There's was it the cellist in the middle? Yeah, has the most attitude. Yeah, it's like sunglasses on. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. we I might have um, to send you that clip. Yeah, I'm putting a note down, and we'll maybe if you can uh, pass on links to some of those if they're on the internet, and we can put those in the show notes. Definitely. That would be amazing. Yeah. I know I would love to see that. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and it's also amazing to see how Michael Jackson himself was really interested in classical music, and he uses it in his uh, in his own music. So I talk about that in my course also. Yeah. I think him doing that sort of opened, uh, I guess, the layman's eyes to that whole other style of music and appreciation. I think it did yes. for me. Like, I, I can't if I was a fan of someone else i might not have you know enjoy listening just to instrumental music in the background or appreciate the music they play in the disney parks as background music and atmospheric music which i just have playlists over and over and my my ipod is like full of that sort of music but if i was like um a heavy metal fan i don't know if i'd have that appreciation <laughs> well there's a brilliant 
uh, album called S&M, where it's Metallica with like the San Francisco or- orchestra. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Okay. Cool. <laughs> there is, there is, there is a, a combination, but I know what you mean. I think for me personally, I think Michael Jackson may have been my first um, experiences with classical music. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that was the case for me as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it shows really how versatile this man was. Yeah. And um, there are more musicians, more pop musicians who use classical music, who use Bach, for instance, and then Liz says... Karen and Bach again, but yeah, they use Bach. I think Sting is. Someone. I think Karen just says it because she likes the sound of his name. <laughs> <laughs> there was like one episode of The Dream Lives On where we said it like ten times in one sentence. It was really bad, so we couldn't stop saying Bach. I'm banned from saying a certain word as well, so don't worry. Oh, I've got a I've got a word that I've already said twelve times this episode, Jamin. So I'll let you pick that out when you listen. Back. <laughs> um. So I guess that sort of moves on like to becoming an MJ fan, I guess really quickly, what was your very first exposure to Michael that you can remember and oh. what made you a Michael fan? My fer- very, and then Liz starts laughing again, is Ben. Oh God, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I say anything, it's just Ben. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was, yeah, well, I heard the Jacksons, the Jackson 5 on, on TV. And um, then suddenly there was this single with Ben. And I was really completely gone. I loved that so much. And the way he sings it, the musicality is so high. Yeah. And still, when I hear this, I get this same emotion that I had when I was a child. So, yeah, that, that was, was the, the start for me. It's a very special song, isn't it? And like when you watch uh, the Living with Michael Jackson documentary that Martin Bashir did, hate Martin Bashir, but anyway. Um, yeah, anyways. The, 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 there's a moment in that where Michael is in Las Vegas at the bottom of like an escalator in some kind of hotel or shopping center or something. And that guy walks up to him, that sort of middle-aged balding guy sort of comes up to him and goes, I love your song, Ben. And just starts talking to him about that particular song. Not Thriller, not The Way You Make Me Feel, not Billie Jean, but like this song from the 70s. And mm-hmm. I just think that's so so awesome that Michael stopped and engaged with him about it and talked about how old he was when he first sang it. And oh, just that's, yeah, really incredible. Very important song in Michael's career, actually. It was his first solo number one, wasn't it, I think? Yes, yeah. and it was special. I think it was special to hear as part of being a score as well, the soundtrack he for got the film. Oscar nominated? Yes. For that did he win belief. it? And he performed yeah. it at the Oscars as well, I'm pretty he sure. He did perform it at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I don't think he won that, though. No. I'm going to check the Dangerous Philosophy. <laughs> 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 <That's double check. laughs> Quick, to, the, to the textbook. Quick. <laughs> 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 no, I don't think he did. That's a great first experience. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah. And Elizabeth? My first experience that this is one I was told about was that when my mother was pregnant with me, there was a person 
at a shop under their home where they lived. And that person was obsessed with Off the Wall for some reason. This is in the late 80s. For good so Off the Wall hadn't just come out. <laughs> it would have been around for a while. <laughs> so it wasn't like it just released that year. <laughs> and he just played it on repeat from his shop from day till night for weeks, months. <laughs> and my mother said, like, that might have been part of why I kind of hit the ground running as a Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> <laughs> You'd had a very early education. Yeah. <laughs> but I was two. And my earliest memories, just my earliest memories, are of watching Smooth Criminal and the Moonwalker anthology film. And I think that's like the only videotape that was mine, you know, when you're little and mm. it's just your videotape. <laughs> and I was watched it on repeat. It's just obsession. You know what two-year-olds are like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it's emblazoned on my, my mind. There was never a time when Michael Jackson wasn't a big part of my life experience. Well, Elizabeth, I think you win for the earliest Michael Jackson experience. <laughs> I think Jamin's child might, might give me a run for my money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, working on it already. 16 weeks. 16 weeks. Uh-oh, cat's out of the bag now with the audience. They didn't know yet. Oh, no. <laughs> That's well, good. On social That's right. media, On social media, they knew, yes. Congratulations, Jamin. Thank you. Congratulations, Jamin. Sorry, I thought it was on social media yeah it was, it was on social media we haven't said it not on the everyone, show yet, yeah but uh, not everyone that oh. is on uh listens has uh, the social media so most of our listeners cut, cut actually aren't even on social media no 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 it's great i'm glad people know now it's okay don't worry that's good oh <laughs> your little moonwalker it's yeah he or she is coming we'll know the gender soon in a in a in a couple of weeks actually for the 20 week scan so so exciting yeah we're pretty excited Go back.
Protect its beauty and splendor, don't let that disappear Preserve our animals and plants and humankind as well So that our future generations can have a story to tell Protect us from evil and spread the word of good Of peace, love, justice, virtue and brotherhood Cause we only have one earth and we can't waste our motherland So let's move as one force, I think it's time to take a stand Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So I want to ask about um, the journal as well, and when that idea came. Like, who conceived of this idea first out of both of you, and like, where did it come from, and, and how did it start? Now, this has been a big argument between us for a few years now. Because I think what came I first, started, the chicken or the egg? I, <laughs> I believe that I had the idea. But the truth of the matter is it wouldn't be here without Karen because I had no way of implementing it. So it was... Yeah, it was more that we um, 
we had we talked uh, over Twitter because of uh, Liz's first article, throwing stones to hide your hands. Yes, we were both kind of of stunned that there was so little about Michael Jackson and um, and in in written in in books, serious stuff, not the nonsense. And, <laughs> not um, everything's nonsense, though, Karen. It's just not academic. You made it sound like everything that's not on the journal is rubbish. <laughs> Uh, but there well. is, but there is plenty of nonsense <laughs> out there. Yeah. Well, but um, uh, so to my mind, it was that Liz said, um, "I would like to see um, articles like this everywhere in journals." And I said, "I would like to see a journal online, so that we ha- that there is one pivotal place window." where you can find all academic work on Michael Jackson, because then we expose it in a way that uh, people can engage with it and people learn him from another uh, angle. And Liz said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I said, okay, then I do that. And the next day I had a website and everything. <sighs> that's and not how I remember the story, Karen. <laughs> well, there we started. <laughs> My version of the story. <laughs> and there is always I wanted, two sides. So. I wanted a print journal. I said, I said there should be a journal for Michael Jackson studies. And I got this idea from Joseph Vogel's website. Because when I started my research, that was the only place in the internet where you could just have credible academic sources and some biographies, but it was really journal articles, conferences, essays, all in one page. And it, he called it MJ Studies. And it was just a brilliant, brilliant name for it. And I wanted I wanted my, Michael Jackson Studies to have a print journal. And then Karen said, and I, obviously I was like, well, I have no idea how I would even go about doing that and then Karen was like I've worked on a journal before I'll make I'll make one I'll make one it's fine and she did (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of stunned (laughs) she just made it in like a few weeks and before I knew it we had a journal with an ISSN on our hands and then we had to I think we felt this huge responsibility because Michael Jackson is such an important mm. figure in culture. Yeah. And he'd been overlooked academically so much that we felt a great pressure to produce something that was accessible but really authoritative and academic and really pivotal but also that people could access you know because journals can be so distanced from readers yeah most of the the academic journals you can find them but uh, they cost a lot of money to get them and um yeah, you have to be on a university, so it's not for for uh, 
people out there public access you have to have like subscription to a journal like yeah you have you need yeah. just subscription yeah 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 and right. it can be very expensive i last looked up an article for journal of popular music something like that and it was 27 pounds to like use the journal for three days mm. 27 yeah. quid yeah yeah, there goes a lot of research and uh, expertise in, and it takes, a, well, you wanted a printed one, but yeah, publishing and printing a journal is a very, very expensive business. Mm. As which we found out yeah. over the last two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even online, yeah, what we do, yeah. We were, it was, it's just one of those things where, I had no clue what we'd signed up for when we started it. And it started eating up like so many hours in the week and money in terms of you can't, you have to put time into it. And it was just the average journal of this size and scope costs like about 10,000 pounds a year to run. Yeah. And we do it. Well, on the grace of the universe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, thank, we thank the universe regularly. <laughs> How come it costs that much money to run? Like, obviously, you'll have website hosting, but I know that's not, that's not 10,000 pounds. So what, how much, why does it cost so much money to run the journal? Well, the main thing is the, it's the range of content we have. So it's it's just really time intensive. Yeah. When we started, I was working on the journal 20 hours a week mm. and writing my book and working and it's to mostly it's mostly it's about all the extra stuff we do. So we have a podcast, we have academic reviews, we have lots of courses. We have academic publications. And you imagine just to do one book book review, you have to read that entire book. Yeah. And you have to spend several days honing a book review. Then it comes to me and I do editorial. Then it goes back to the person who wrote it and they have to make the changes. Then it comes back to me again. And I have to proofread, schedule the whole thing up. And we have like six to eight of these things coming out a month. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, oh my gosh, editorial is the biggest expense, you know, for a journal. Yeah. Um, one of the things I did this year was the transcription of our Prince and Michael Jackson episodes. Yeah, yeah. And it just took like a whole week yes yeah to just transcribe it was a whole week we've been asked that as well people have um contacted us and said can you do transcriptions of your episodes mainly actually we were asked by somebody who was hearing impaired and geez i'd love to but the amount of time it would take especially for our long like you know a three-hour episode is like almost a short episode for us yeah exactly Yeah, that takes a, a lot of time. And um, 
I know that uh, Liz is really quick in typing, <laughs> but uh, then still, it's uh, a lot of work. And, and, and during transcriptions, you edit immediately. So, yeah, takes up a lot of time. And then yeah. we also have the, the context you have to keep and um, outreach. Yeah. yeah. So we do like all our content is independently provided. So we don't have any affiliation with universities or the estate or anything like that yeah so we're completely impartial which means a journal which would usually have like at least 12 to 20 people working on it at any time mm. is just me and karen yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think michael jackson fans really especially michael jackson fans who want to study and learn need to recognize and realize how lucky we are to have this resource at our fingertips online, really. I mean, like what other artists out there have basically uh, an academy online offering tertiary level qualifications, really? I just don't think it's out there. And this is a great, great initiative. And I want to thank you both um, for bringing this to the community. And it's clearly, there's a hunger for it. And uh, it's a great success and, and well done to you both. You're so, you. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Like, there's been moments where I just feel like, is this? Is anybody reading this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are there people out there? You who? <laughs> I'd like to know what sort of, and I do have a couple of questions coming up, and and um, I do apologise, Elizabeth. We will get to <laughs> the Dangerous Philosophies book soon. I'm just so, I'm just so so curious about a lot of these things to do with um your your website um i i've got a question a couple of questions around how it all works because it is a website that is very very complex like when you go there there's a lot going on there's a lot of tabs there's a lot of different sections you can go to Mm -hmm. and um as much as of, of a brilliant brilliant website as it is i will i will say it is it could it can be a little bit daunting for somebody going there for the first time trying to find yeah. out what where to go and what to do first so i want to know could you could you sum up for a listener like in a nutshell what are the different things you guys actually offer on the journal because i hear you talking about the journal i hear about the companion journal i hear about the reviews the all different kinds of things. What, what does it actually offer in a nutshell? Okay, so the, a journal of Michael Jackson Academic Studies is an academic, scholarly journal, which is peer-reviewed. And it's basically, that means it's a place where academic writing and scholarship relating to Michael Jackson can be accessed. So what academic journals do do is they share academic criticism and research with interested parties so people who are interested in the research or want to use it now we present the research as books courses events essays teaching resources columns articles book reviews academic podcasts and original research and in addition to this we also publish author interviews i just want to go a little bit further just to say why why michael jackson needs this so much please because books on elvis presley alone 
outnumber the titles on Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Ray Charles, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and Michael Jackson combined. Whoa. Whoa. So if you look on the any academic database, your university library, British library, any uni library, and you search Michael Jackson, you will find books, articles in the single digits. But if you searched Madonna or Elvis, you would find hundreds. So what's happened is that critically, academically, Michael Jackson, before the journal, was dying. He was disappearing into the ether. Because I know from my research, what lasts hundreds of years is those books books in those libraries. And Michael wasn't getting those kind of books. Moonwalk was the only book about Michael Jackson I could find in the British Library. Just one. Wow. That's so shocking. It shocked us. Yeah. <laughs> it did. It really did. Yeah. Mm. It definitely a, but, a, a worthy cause, absolutely. Yeah, like and that's why dangerous philosophy is so big. <laughs> because <laughs> there were so many aspects of Michael's career on which there were n- no articles, essays, books ever written mm. on at all. So a bit of advice. If you get to the journal, we have tightened it up a bit. It was just way too much going on. So now it's just the main place to go is the main page, which has all the latest things latest review, latest article, latest course, or the tab that says publications. There you can find every publication. Yeah. Yeah. But we really want to make the journal more user-friendly, but that would need time and donations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because then we need to move to another server that has more resources, and um, that's not sponsored. <laughs> so when if somebody goes to your journal and they do a course on there, can you explain what sort of qualification they can come out with and sort of how it would be recognised? Yeah, that's really cool. So I think we'll take my, the two, my two best-selling courses are Teaching Michael Jackson Studies, and an introduction to Michael Jackson's studies. And what you do is that each of these courses are, there's six lessons, but they take people, some people as little as four weeks and other people take up as much as three months, but you can take as long as you want to. And what I've seen over the last year and a bit is that people are really using these qualifications more as... So we have one student who used these qualifications towards an application for a PhD. 
Yeah. And her her training with the journal proved that she was knowledgeable on the subject. And that's really what these courses are for. These courses are the only Michael Jackson studies courses in the world that you can take outside of universities. And there's so few as well in universities. And what they do is they bring you up to a level where you can eloquently write about Michael Jackson, discuss Michael Jackson, and go on to teach Michael Jackson studies yourself. Yeah, and also learn to learn to study him and how you can study him. And that's why uh, Introduction to Michael Jackson Studies is what we call the base. And all the other courses we made on him are extensions. And um, they give you a lot of, not only information, but they bring you on a journey that you learn how to analyze his work and, um, yeah, what Liz said. Make you an independent researcher. Researcher, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, when you write an essay about him, after you've done the course, you can be considered for a publication in a journal. So, it gives you space to, pub- to, to get published, which is very important for academics. And in other journals, when you have a, have a topic and you have written about it, and you send it into a specific journal, well, <laughs> most of the time they won't take it. Yeah, my chapter for throwing stones was rejected by a journal. Yeah. And that's wow. why I went for, to publishers. And we just published this amazing academic thesis on BAD yeah. Yeah. Um, by a brilliant Ryan uh, Gary. A researcher called yeah. Ryan Gary. Yeah. Ryan wouldn't have been able to get that published if the journal didn't exist. Mm. Yeah. He contacted so, us for this. Yeah, he wanted it. So... I think the main thing is that most of the people who have taken our online courses, especially like the really big ones, like Introduction, Introduction to Michael Jackson, Jackson Studies, the, the Dangerous Course, course Michael History Jackson, Course, History, yeah. a lot of them want to become more proficient in their ability to express themselves when it comes to writing and talking about Michael Jackson, Mm. to be eloquent. But there's a lot of people who just really want to know more. Yeah, yeah. So in my Dangerous course, you learn how to read Dancing the Dream, how to deconstruct Remember the Time. Mm. And they're basically the courses I would have made if I could set up a Michael Jackson school somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the reading Michael Jackson short films, where I use Michael's short films to teach you how to read uh, short films. And um, then you can take it further for yourself and start writing about short films. It's not just watching and thinking, oh, well, that's, that's a cool film or no, what happens and how does it work mm. and uh, what's what, what's considered 
And is the main mode of delivery like you guys talking in videos and readings for the students? And how, how is that information communicated? It's um, in videos, but it's also uh, written and um, uh, stats and resources and, um, yeah. Fantastic. Different, different types. So there's a few different ways we approach it. But the main way that we thought people really liked was lots of mini videos of about seven to ten minutes. Yeah. Of like a little lecture with the with the mm. with the teacher, mm-hmm. with tasks and yeah. like explanations. But I always really like to give readings, podcast episodes. I give a lot of articles and essays. Um, as well so if you look on onlinearteducation.co.uk each course would tell you in detail what's in it like every lesson so if you go to for example you could do michaeljacksonstudies.org slash teach mj that will give you lesson by lesson every single aspect of the course yeah and most of our courses have about 30 to 40 aspects of Michael's um, career or so for example the teaching one has loads of resources as well how to teach his books how to teach his films how to teach his songs how to teach him with literature how to teach him with ethnicity (laughs) yeah because I knew we knew that we were only going to get one shot at making this kind of content. But what I noticed is that people wanted more than one course. So even though the value of the course is is like high, it wasn't in keeping with what made me and Karen feel good to sell the courses for the price that they should be sold for. People were writing to us and saying, I wanted to buy like four and I can't do that. It's like way too expensive. So we brought them down, most of them, to a really affordable price. We just want people to be able to learn. Just for like the sort of, I guess, general fans that are listening and and are sort of not understanding this whole other side of not just a fandom but an appreciation and education of an artist – what is like basically an academic study and how could one be considered an academic? Very lovely question. (laughs) I love that question. Now, for me, it's never been about qualifications. No, it's been about eagerness and desire to learn. And I was inspired by so many Michael Jackson fans with their crazy libraries and their willingness to analyze every line of Michael Jackson's songs. Shout out to Karen and MJ Book Club. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out Karen. (laughs) Karen is a perfect example of so many studious Michael Jackson fans. And Jamin said something so interesting in his interview for us. He said he liked the word scholar more than academic. Mm -hmm. 
because that implies is someone who wants to to research and so whereas a typical journal would say you need to have certain qualifications yeah. to be published by us yeah we don't do that no academic studies for us means you've done a good amount of research you have studied your topic you know it as well as you can and you're willing to take advice on how you can improve yeah. the work you've done. And we'll publish anybody who sincerely wants to do that research. I just don't believe you have to have qualifications to prove your intelligence. No, that's correct. So academic strictly means that you've you have an MA, a BA, an MA, and then a PhD. Degrees, not, degrees, yeah. But postgraduate degrees, yeah. yeah. But but for me, I believe in the researcher and the scholar. And this is twenty first century. You can be a scholar from your own home. You don't have to pay. 15 grand for a, for a master to be a scholar. No. No. And, you, and, and with this, we reach out to a lot, a lot of people who want to know more and can do it from, the, from their home and give them the opportunity to publish with us. Fantastic. That's, that's fantastic. What a great answer. Thank you. And uh, just before we, we move on to uh, your latest work, The Dangerous Philosophies of Michael Jackson, we do have one last question around the journal itself. And we'd like to know what, what the future holds. Wow, wow. Jamin. Jeez. <laughs> That's been conversations of late. <laughs> like we're, we had so many dreams for it, you know, and we do still have lots of dreams for it. But there's a delicate balance of, you know what it's like. You guys create amazing content. The time intensiveness of it is a challenge. And uh, although we do, we have on there, if you go to michaeljacksonstudies.org slash about, you can see all the things we wanted to do. We wanted to get digital archiving. Mm-hmm. So people could find the content on a, on the databases like JSTOR. Yeah. yeah. But that costs, you know, that costs each DOI you register. Yeah. Um, we wanted to do lots of interesting things. A lot of people asked us about physical masterclasses. Mm. Like everybody goes to MJ school. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the city. Wow, that's that's cool. With the dangerous philosophies copies. <laughs> so we have big dreams, and we want to print. We're gonna we want to print, get it into print. Yeah, because it's still very digital. Yeah, um, and the dangerous philosophies is a perfect example of how beautiful the printed mm-hmm. text can be. And we also really wanted to get 
Michael Jackson studies in universities. That's that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Because he's not there. And Michael is everywhere, but not there. Mm. And that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. Real. Why do you, why do you think that is? Why, yeah. why do you think Michael is not recognised or included as much as he should be in tertiary courses? It's to well. do with the fact that he's been stigmatised yeah. with bad press and academics are as easily influenced as anybody else. And so it seemed for a long time not worth the trouble to try and even approach Michael Jackson. Do you think as well, like on the Dangerous 25 roundtable that we held, we, we talked a lot about uh, James's analogy of um, Trojan horses, of Michael packaging things in what can appear like superficial pop uh, outer frameworks, but they're being really deep, deep messages within them. Do you think that's, do you think he contributed himself to there being a lack of recognition in, in universities because his albums and his songs can often come across as very, very pop and rooted within the time periods they were created? Like very commercial to very commercial mm. products. Let's take Ghosts, for example, the Ghosts film. That's deep. There's a lot of really, really deep stuff going on in there. But there's also a lot of incredibly corny, cheesy 90s jokes all the way through mm. it. And do you think that his yeah. his reliance on making something commercial and popular ultimately hurt his credibility academically? No, I don't I, think so. I, I think it did. Oh, I don't think so. Okay, we've got a difference in opinion here. I've got to hear no, both sides. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love. It's so good that we get these different opinions. I don't think so because um, even though popular studies, popular music studies are reasonably young, you, when you listen to his music, even even that you know that it's um, uh, pop music and, and it seems superficial, when you are an academic and you you do, for instance, musicology and you listen to it, you know there's more. And um, it, it's interesting to me that when we started the journal, we were looking for people who were writing about him. And we found uh, an academic like Michelle Wallace, who had written a piece on him. We found a book written by a German philosopher and people were interested, but I think the whole bad press he had gave him this, um, well, made it, made it sure that people kept, kept a distance. They didn't want to be uh, involved with it. And I think in the academic world, which can be really conservative sometimes, but especially the popular music and popular culture i think they definitely could have done more and i don't think it was michael himself and i just don't believe that and you <laughs> i have a different focus i think jamin has a really good point like michael was so academic as a person and he hid it really well and that's just the truth yes he never went on any interview and said i have thousands and thousands of books 
and I read Shakespeare all the time and I know classics and I have, you know, 18th century paintings in my house. He never did that. And I, I understand that he's a private person, but when you are so accessible, you can lose credibility. Of, well, no, not credibility, but on the face value, you can lose. Michael Jackson was just so present. You know, he's thriller sold like kettles and, you know, washing machine. It didn't sell like an album, like a luxury item. It sold like a staple item, like something you get from Ikea. <laughs> so Michael moved from the realm of artist to, I call it simulacra, Mm. But he basically became closer to, you know, a utility than a person. He became like Mickey Mouse, like a brand. He stopped being a human being and an artist. And if you're not a human being and an artist, you can't be studied. That's interesting. Very interesting. It's very interesting, but I see two things. You see, on one hand, you see Michael Jackson, the artist, and the other hand, you see Michael Jackson, the brand. If that makes academics not want to study him or not taking him seriously, I think that's more something the press does. Madonna doesn't have those issues, neither does Bowie. Yeah, but then we talk about something else again. Well, it's definitely not about the genre. No, it's not the genre. But you have a massive, uh, important, powerful black artist here. And you just named two white ones. I Do just you think the race, the race aspect has a, a, a huge influence on it as well? It has to. It, it, it does have a part to play, but I'm not... My, my research has showed me that it's not just race. No. It's so much deeper than that. There's a lot of things going on. And as much as race is an issue, Michael being a child star is just as much an issue. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally one for having these discussions because I told you how many books on Elvis and the Beatles as well, yeah. far outnumber books on yeah. black artists. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, Michael Jackson is a completely different topic because with the success of Thriller and things like the Jackson 5 cartoon, Michael Jackson almost became fictional. Yes. But that can be especially very interesting for certain type of, of research, media studies, for instance, how this works and um, how this phenomenon um, um, is presented and how it's 
evolving over time. And I, there's so much to research. If you're a research and an academic, you have your interests. And then you, you find, find someone, someone like, like the Jacksons, Jacksons and the Jackson 5. And, and from that, their sibling, Michael Jackson, who becomes his own star. I can imagine that people are really interested in, hey, how does this work? What's this behind this? What What is this for, for person? And that's not what we do. We look at his art. But a certain type of research, I would have expected that at least. Yeah. Oh, oh one, one thing. thing. This is really important. If, um, <laughs> if people go to Michael Jackson Studies dot org they get get a free academic companion to michael and a free online course it's like a mini one so it's quite quick and if they go to my site elizabethamisu.com they get a free online course which is my most popular dangerous philosophies course so, so it's, it's all about, about michael jackson's, jackson's artistic afterlife um so a lot of readers I thought I need to give them something back <laughs> for buying this expensive book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they get a free course. And Fantastic. anybody who, who signs up on the site. So that gives you a taste of like the kind of content yeah. that you can you can access on there. Hold me like the river Jordan And I will then say to thee you are my friend carry me like you are my brother love me like a mother will you be there hey. Oh. Hey. scold me when lost will you find me but they told me a man should be faithful and walk when not able and fight till the end but I'm only human Control of me seems that the world's got a role for me. I'm so 
Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. Well, I think it's time now where we start talking about your latest product that's uh, hit the market. Um, something that's very exciting for Michael Jackson fans all around the world. I mean, there's many books that come out about Michael Jackson every year. Uh, you, you know, within the last few years, we've seen at least two or three every year coming out of note. Uh, but this book is a little bit different from uh, a lot of the other books that come out. It is the first academic book on Michael Jackson, I guess you could say. Um, well, maybe perhaps with the exception of um, Joe Vogel's Man in the Music. Um, but it is, it is a book that has caused a lot of discussion, positive discussion, because it's it's a book that people um, can use as as reference material when they're doing their own research, and it's a book that includes a lot of fascinating um, academic and scholarly insights into Michael's life. I want to know a little bit about where this book came from. Uh, were you Elizabeth, were you writing the book prior to the journal, I guess, or, or did the journal come first? How, what came first? And, and we've got to admit, and this is a bit of a confession, but Q and I haven't, haven't read the book. It's not because we haven't wanted to either. I'm really sorry about that. I just haven't not had the, the finances to, to buy the book. It is definitely on my list to add to my library. I have a home library. Michael has about, you know, three shelves in it at the moment. And yeah, it's not because I haven't wanted to read it, Elizabeth. So don't ever think that, okay? All things but in we, good time. All good things yeah. in good time. That's right. So yeah, but all we did want to admit, we, it's not really a review of the book today. It's <laughs> no. discussing the book. We, we want you we, to we tell haven't. us as much as you can about what's yeah. in the book essentially. But yeah, yeah. we'll kick Thanks things- for mentioning that, Jamin. That's, that's okay. We'll um we'll kick we'll kick things off with you if possible talking about the origins of the book and and where it all started. Yeah, it started in 2014. I was taking a break from teaching and I was also in the middle of a master's degree at King's College London in early modern English literature. So you can imagine how intense that was. <laughs> and um, I think master's study is challenging, but King's is another level. They push you to your best. That's, that's, the, that's the energy there. They want you to be your very best. And you're surrounded by these world-class academics. And you just have to raise your game. Every single seminar, the readings were immense <laughs> so I was at the at a new frontier academically personally and I was learning a new vocabulary of research basically new models on how to research and write about research research and I was really in the 17th century like the funniest thing about me is that most of the time I like perusing my 17th century texts at the British Library. <laughs> and I'm talking 400-year-old books. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I like to, to research. So 
when I turned my attention to Michael Jackson, it really wasn't, there really wasn't a game plan in mind. It evolved. It really did. So I was doing that research and then at the same time, I was doing my whole Michael Jackson grief process that I'd put off for like five years. And this was around the time Escape came out. That right time, the Escape album. So Michael was everywhere in, again, the hologram, you know, the, you know that stuff. So, um, Holosham. <laughs> Holosham. <laughs> People were like, who is that? <laughs> Pretty much. Ernest Valentino. <laughs> Someone said somewhere on the Twitter that they had a dream and the hologram came after them. And it just made me laugh so much. That's amazing. What a great Halloween. It was like a nightmare. Kind of. I uh, would be running like Michael from those dogs in Moonwalker. And someone else said that they had a horrible nightmare and the hologram went on tour. (laughs) Oh, that's like reality, I reckon. Yeah, I I reckon in the next two years that will come true. It's already in MJ1. It's in MJ1. So oh, gosh. we'll get a touring Cirque show with the hologram at the front, I bet. <laughs> I hope Cirque don't do it. Mm. Don't lower mm. yourself, Cirque, my God. Gosh. But my, one of my friends did tell me, who is that? Who is that? I was like, that's Michael Jackson. I'm like, nope. <laughs> Not. I've often Someone thought it could be an interesting thing to go and see, like, for example, the This Is It. They could do like a once-off This Is It concert with the original band and everything but have the hologram doing it. And it, it would just – I don't think it should happen and I think it would be horrible. But it would, it's interesting to think about how close they could get to bringing a posthumous project to reality. Like, But um, I hope they don't do that. Well, J.K. Rowling has um, in theory in Harry Potter – and it reminded, reminded me of those kind of, they're basically reanimated corpses. Mm. And, it was, and it was just, it was just a bit wrong. Yeah, it, it absolutely, it feels wrong when you watch it. It feels really, really, it's it's like Frankensteinian and weird and wrong. Yeah, very much like that. If they were using actual <laughs> footage of him, yes. that would be different. I yeah, I agree, Q. If they could somehow take the original footage of Michael from his actual shows and then turn it into a 3D hologram, awesome, done, I'm there. That's what I thought they were going to do. No, what they did with... Technology didn't. is not up to that yet because I the don't film... think that's possible. You guys not know how yet, they made yeah. the hologram, right? I think they just recorded some guy dancing. Yeah, and yes. they just cg the They got a dude, Ernest Valentino, they got a, they got a, a guy like an impersonator do MJ's moves and they just did a computer generated 3D head on top of him, on top of his body. Oh no. Like avatar head sort of. Wetter, like the wetter digital guys could have done good better than mm. that. Yeah. yeah. They totally. invented yeah. Gollum. Yeah. They could do <laughs> Michael easily. Yeah. They invented half the characters in, in that film. Mm. Yeah. You know, if they really wanted to make Michael, they could have made Michael. It's not like. It was a cheap thing. I don't know. I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Sony and the estate are all about putting money in to make things really high quality, though, myself. Uh, but I don't know. 
We digress. So anyway. the book. The, book, um, the beginnings you, of a book. Yes, you were talking about the origins of the book. So I was doing my grief process, which was on a massive delay. And um, I had to do all the things. Like I hadn't seen the funeral. I hadn't, I just didn't know anything about it. Like I didn't even know that um, Man in the Mirror went to number one. You know, I was I was teaching full time. I went to my lessons, taught, came home. And that was it. Like I just didn't I didn't register any of it. So it kinda I, happened for me that year when I had that mini break. And um because I was researching, I started researching Michael Jackson. And I expected to find, you know, hundreds of books and I couldn't find any books and then I found one which was Joseph Vogel's Man in the Music and I read it and it gave me an incredible insight into the context of Michael Jackson's career that I'd never had before and it got me thinking about where things went really wrong for Michael. And I started writing an essay for the Journal of Celebrity Studies for publication. And it was all about Michael Jackson's personas. And it's called Throwing Stones to Hide Your Hands. The danger, um, no, 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 that's not. The multiple persona of Michael <laughs> Jackson. Thank you. I have so many chapters. <laughs> Karen's like, you don't know your own book? <laughs> don't worry, I know. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. <laughs> oh, yes. Karen says to hide your hands, the mortal persona of Michael Jackson. And I wrote about Michael, Michael Jackson's, Jackson's various personas. Can I just say it's 11 o'clock here in my defense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's right. <laughs> it's late. <laughs> and um, any excuse? And um, I broke down his personas into the, into the mortal, who is the real person who died, the immortal, which was created posthumously with things like Cirque shows and MJ1 and the Michael Jackson immortal show, um, the idol persona that came out around Thriller, and the wacko persona, which is a result of the backlash. And, of course, the monster persona, which came as a result of the allegations and how they were sensationalised in the press. And I deconstructed each of these personas and I contrasted them with a biblical story of a man called Naboth, who was killed in a public stoning because the king wanted his vineyards, which had been in his family for generations. And when he refused to give them up, the queen got two people in the court to accuse him of slandering the king and God. And the people just took him out and stoned him to death. And so... I contrasted Michael's story with that story, 
as an allegory. And I sent it to the Journal of Celebrity Studies. I knew I had something good on my hands. I did know that this was good. It's good stuff. And they were like, not interested. So, of course, I dug my heels in. And I was like, well, I'll just write some more essays then. (laughs) (laughs) So me. And then I published it on my website. And within two days, it got like 80 shares. And it was on forums within a week. And people were talking to me about it. And at that point, I just wanted to publish 12 essays online and then add another 12 essays to it, which is extreme, I know, (laughs) and publish them as like maybe a Kindle book. But by the time my second essay, which was on Dancing the Dream, which was a critical analysis of Dancing the Dream, where I deconstruct the poems, the parables, the philosophies, and the connections, it became really apparent that I couldn't, it wouldn't be good to put all this criticism just on the internet for for nothing. Because what happens when you do that, if it's not linked into a journal, copyright gets challenged and compromised. Mm. And then the credibility of the research is easily challenged. It's difficult for people to cite you properly. Uh, And um, it also kind of demeans the work. It kind of backfires. You know, just when you put that criticism out there. So uh, the second essay... I had started approaching publishers with a proposal and I wrote to 22 publishers and ABC Clio was almost the last publisher I wrote to. And they read the first few essays and my plan for the book and then they jumped on board they really thought, yeah, this was this was something that could really work. Awesome. And that's kind of how my journey began. That's how it you must have been so relieved at that point. Relieved and terrified. Oh, of course, because <laughs> then the real work begins. <laughs> I had a challenge with my self-confidence. I just didn't... Michael is so big, you know? In every way. And I just did not feel up to the task. But I also was aware that it wasn't about me. Anyway, it's about Michael's work and his creativity. And that's something that I always remind myself of. It's not about me. So if I'm a bit not as good as I want to be, it doesn't matter because... As long as Michael's creativity has a long-lasting legacy, it's a job well done. Um, that sort of moves into the next que- question naturally, actually. There's there's a lot of different 
topics covered in this book, like a lot, was a, <laughs> was a focused book with a focused topic something you were unconcerned with? Um, the concept of focus is relative. I chose the topics that inspired me. And although I could have written a book with six chapters and saved myself a year and a half, (laughs) (laughs) I was really aware that I had this opportunity to put as much critical analysis of Michael's entire career in a book as I could. So it was more about if you had just one book in your library on Michael Jackson and 50 people wanted to write 50 different essays, would they be able to all find something in the dangerous philosophies they could use? And that was my goal. Because I was aware that this book, although I hope it will be just one of many books, I can't predict that. So I wanted to do as much as I possibly could, especially on all the overlooked areas of Michael's life. But this is a common structure for academic books to have a range. It's basically three books in one. Mm. It's, this is the structure that you often see in, in early modern. But what usually happens is each part of my book would have been a different book and each essay would have been written by a different person. So where I went beyond <laughs> was I wrote them all. I want to ask you guys about um, the pricing of the book. So I'm on Amazon.com right now. And if I were to buy a copy right now in Australia, it would cost me $73 uh, for a hardcover. And if I was to buy a Kindle version, it would cost me $57.37. Now, I'll, I'll admit when I first – because I, I – desperately want to buy this book but uh, we're just about to move house so <laughs> I've got a lot of money going towards that at the moment but when I um when I first heard of that price I was a little shocked and I, I'll admit I spoke to Q and I was like Q oh my god that's so expensive and I was like I can't afford that right now how, how are fans going to afford this and then Q came back and said dude just hang on this is academic textbook pricing I was like that's so true because when I remember back to me going to university, you know, going to the university bookshop to buy all your course materials, of course, books are that expensive and more so, sometimes $200 or more. Um, yeah. So, could you – because I know like the, the from looking at Twitter and Facebook and social media and everything, the literally the only, only criticism I can see of this book is the price. And I think it's a little bit misfa- mis- um misguided or misplaced in a way um so would you be able to talk about your decisions around the price uh or maybe they weren't your decisions no they're not (laughs) um i think what i love is that how you two cottoned on straight away that this isn't like any other book on michael jackson that you may have come across this is a book on michael jackson 
that your university professor would purchase to teach a semester course. So it's one of those things that I was so aware of in the beginning and I was concerned about, but the publisher was very clear to me that they determine pricing and that the price is really, it's really about their bottom line. Academic research is not like fiction or it's not like, even Joe's book had a massive release. The Dangerous Philosophies has an initial print of 1,000 copies in the world. They will do more if, and only if, there's more demand than that. So you're in a position where the publisher is literally looking at this academic book and thinking, if we just sell 1,000 of it in the whole world, can we break even? So this is why you find the really popular academic books have like second, seventh, 20th printing. Because academic books do not have that massive print run. So what I did was I had even more incentive to jam pack the book. <laughs> just like, let's put more in there so that people have even more value for their money. But um, even though I don't decide the price, I think that academic publishers are on a really tight budget and it's really niche it's not for a mass audience it's for a really small uh, niche group of interested academics and maybe students and learners so unlike Tarabarelli or something, The Magic and the Madness, which is just sold for, you know, it's just a very unique book. It's not just a book to read. It's a research tool. It's mm -hmm. a resource. It's supposed to live with you as you grow. It's, it's not supposed to be... Ah, dangerous philosophies. Let's open this up, have a quick read. It goes in the shelf. <laughs> it's supposed to be something that you could have as a student and then you go on to do maybe a PGC, a master, whatever qualifications, and then you become a teacher and you still pick up your copy of dangerous philosophies to use in your classroom. So, not all books are the same. <laughs> Some books are academic. And yep. me and Karen started having a sweepstake on, like, what's your most expensive Michael Jackson book? And we have spent... Karen wins for the most expensive book. The Opus? Was... Oh, no, God, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> you said, is it the Opus? Michael no. Jackson Opus. Oh, gosh, no. I really want that. I want that one. But, um, the problem with the Opus is there's once you get it, you can't do anything with it. 
It doesn't fit on bookshelves. And you almost need like, I don't know what it's called. Is it called a plinth? Like a, a sort of wooden stand that you can actually yeah. sit the book on permanently. Mm-hmm. You would need to get someone to build you that yeah. to, to put it on. It's ridiculously big. It's so big. And it breaks my heart that I've got one <laughs> in the box that it arrived in, in the back of a cupboard because I have oh. nowhere to display it. And it is a wow. beautiful book. That's sad, cute. It is. Come it breaks on. my heart because I love books so much. I have a library. Oh. Um, when we did this house, I was like, okay, well, this room here at the back is my library. And I haven't got my new bookshelves yet, but even then it's still not going to fit on a bookshelf. And it's like a piece that I do not want to hide away. So The opus isn't practical. It's not. It's not at all. I've actually held a copy of it before and you just sit it on your lap and it's, you just, you can't help but laugh because it's so comically massive. (laughs) It's, it's enormous. Yes. It's not for your lap. It's for a coffee table. But it's too big for a coffee table. It's It's too big for a coffee table. It's like you need a full dining table to to put this thing out. It's out of control. Well, Q wins then. (laughs) how much was your opus oh okay it was hundreds and hundreds Hundreds, yeah Yeah. i I would can't remember i think i've blocked it out mentally but then because of then of course there's the shipping as well which is heartbreaking to australia Mm. you know what i think if another academic book on michael jackson was to come out now and it was priced at 73 dollars or whatever yours is priced at or more nobody would say anything because I think yours was the first. And anytime and that's such yeah. a hard position to yeah, be. Yeah, anytime you're the first at anything, it's difficult. Yep. So MJ fans have been very used to getting books for fifteen dollars. <laughs> yes, they ha- yes, they have. They've been spoiled really. Yeah. <laughs> really. But um you know, the people who were on this, and there's so many of them. <laughs> been like writing to me for a year or more like pressing me when is dangerous philosophy coming out none of them had any problem with Mm. the price Mm. not one of them and one of my really lovely contributors on the journal actually bought it twice (laughs) she bought it digitally and physically because she had to have it as soon as it came out so people who are really aware of the value of research, are aware that it is an investment that will just keep returning to you over and over again. Again, It's, it's worth, it's, it's got a worth to you that you can't measure in, in money. And also, if what it means for Michael, you know, to have invincible, seriously covered academically to have history academically researched that's never been done before Mm. um it's so important history is important so is invincible um and also i discuss his afterlife which is so so crucial to how his legacy is shaped. And I hold no punches when I discuss the way in which his image is being reconstructed. 
that's the chapter I want to read. And that's the, <laughs> that's the one I've got some questions about too because I've read whatever's on. As soon as this book hit <laughs> Google Books, I was there and I was reading that chapter before any other. And I was, um, yeah, I got like five pages or whatever it was into the chapter and then it just, that's it. There's no more because it's Google Books and they only put a few pages on unless you pay. So I can't wait to get my copy because I really, really want to dive in more depth into that chapter and you guys know me and you know how passionate I am about how Michael has been represented from 2009 onwards and how angry I get at some of the decisions Sony and the estate have made and how those decisions have impacted the public's perception of Michael Jackson. I'll give you an example. I always use this example. And this problem exists in a range of Michael Jackson posthumous products, not just uh, the infamous 2010 Michael album, but the Vision box set, the hologram, lots and lots of different um, products suffer from this. But The black or white video disclaimer that's been changed. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, lot of problems, but I'll give you an example. One, one time I was, I was teaching my class, uh, I don't know what it was, history or something, and we were like, I often put music on in the background. I put on like um, Apple Music just playing while we're studying or whatever, or kids are drafting. And Michael Jackson was playing, I had a playlist on or something, and one kid yells out, I want you to play Michael Jackson's Monster. That's my favorite MJ song. Oh my God. Monster. Monster. Wow. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. there's no way this yeah. kid has access to the CJ DeVilla version. So <laughs> he yeah. can only be talking about one version. And that that has really, really just I don't know. Like that 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 album in particular, like I don't I don't think the world in general has properly grasped the fact that fake, fraudulent Michael Jackson quote-unquote songs have been commercially released to the public and are now permanently available in his catalogue and children are buying those songs and listening to them as Michael Jackson. And that makes me more angry than just about... I, it, it makes me angry on the same scale that the Chandler and Arviso allegations do because we're talking about Michael's legacy, artistic legacy here, which he tried to protect um, so so closely so i want to know like i guess what i want to know is being someone who hasn't read this full chapter i want to know how how um how do i put this i don't mean to sound rude how How do you how on how exactly how do you handle it how on the fence are you about this issue I, I really want to know i'm not i'm not on the fence about anything (laughs) you heard the dream lives on i'm not on the fence about anything What I learned a few years ago is that as soon as I let emotion get into my argument, I lost my argument. And it happened to me so many times that I just found ways to channel the way I felt into my work. Because what usually happens is from a place of anger, which I totally respect. And I've been there, Karen and I have been there, you know, with just some things we've seen and we've, we've felt that. We knew that from my position and our position of academics, we couldn't take that anger and have effect with it. It just no. wasn't going to work. Immediately, you get that response of, 
Oh, you're emotional. Mm. You're just emotional. You're one of those emotional Michael Jackson fans. And if you weren't emotional, yeah, then you would, you know. So what I did is what, you know, I saw Shakespeare scholars do because they get angry too. Gosh, if you see the, the, the kind of back and forth that goes on in the journals with the Shakespeare scholars, mm -hmm. like insulting each other with academic language and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you see, like, you can read an argument like on the so-called popularity of playbooks, you know, these, these scholars think that they know something, but I'm going to show them that they don't. I realise that in order to really destabilise what's happening, it's important to understand exactly what's happening. So what I do in my chapter is I take each release, I take This Is It, 2010's Michael, Bad 25, the deluxe edition, and the Escape album, and I look at them as material artefacts. So I imagine I'm looking at them 400 years in the future, and I'm a Michael Jackson study scholar, and this is some ancient artefacts from 2010. And of course, I'll be looking at it and comparing it with the work that was produced in the artist's life. And from that perspective, it's easy to see that something's gone a very different way to the artist's own work. And then the question is, where is Michael Jackson? That's the question I ask throughout my chapter. The, the thing is, if we don't know where Michael Jackson is, then we won't know where he isn't. And my conclusion, to cut the chapter short, is that Michael Jackson was in all of it. So the posthumous reconstructions are reconstructions for economic gain. And because their primary purpose is to sell, and it isn't new, you know, we have people from Shakespeare's time that I compare Branker and McLean to as editors. They're editing Michael Jackson posthumously and they're reconstructing him for very different purposes. And I argue that Michael just isn't there. And it's almost painfully apparent that he's not there. So well, there's three tracks. Yeah. He's not there. Well, well I'm even talking about when he, he is, he is there. He's not there. That's, that's what I'm, I'm getting at. So yes, of course, in the tracks that are dubious, he's clearly not there, but even in the tracks when he is there, because he didn't do that final production. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that sound design. He didn't okay it. He didn't do the order of tracks. He isn't there. It's like Michael Jackson disappears from those posthumous releases. And that's my argument in the long, the short version. 
That's that's beautifully expressed. Yeah, thank yeah. you. That's good to hear because the truth is that I've read a number of books, and I'm not going to name names because I do respect in totality these authors. But there's a number of authors that have written on that era and not said that. So I appreciate that you've um, you've said that. I think it's awkward for academics or anybody writing academic writing like this no one is intending to to sell more than a thousand copies so you can get away with anything really (laughs) (laughs) you can be honest it's that's that's the thing like well yeah honesty is really important to me like as a historian that's my field of study academically is history and the the central thing that's important to me as a michael jackson fan is historical truth that michael is represented truthfully and accurately and that when we discuss him we're talking about the reality or getting as close as we can to the reality of his his life or art and also this is another thing when authors are using and not writing in like a for a mass audience you can either go my roots, which is academic, and then you are not doing it for for fame or anything. <laughs> You're just doing it for love. Or you can do Mike Smallcombe's route, which is complete self-publication, yeah. which is a very, very painstaking and arduous route as well, as well. So both me and my chose the hard way. If you want to be published by a mainstream publisher they will have the final say on your book. And this is a big thing that I don't think all your listeners understand. A lot of things happen with books that the author can't control. And it's unlikely that they're going to tell you that that happened. But but that's part of the, the thing. So although we like to think or the author has control over the price, the um, the style, the layout, the cover. Really, nine times out of ten, it's not the case. They do not have the final say. And when you sign that contract, you sign that the publisher can alter things the way they want to. And, and they can even ask you to include sections that you may not feel comfortable with. Mm. So I would say it's always good to contact authors, if you can, directly, and voice your concerns with them because nobody would undertake writing, a, you know, a 130, 40,000 words on Michael Jackson from, you know, if they're going to do that, they obviously started for sure in a good place. They really wanted to, to create something of value. So if there's a section on the posthumous work that's problematic, then something has gone wrong somewhere. Yeah, well, it's either, I mean, it could either be a publisher telling them not to write something or it could be them just not knowing or not being educated themselves on that topic, potentially. It's very possible. You know, I, I, um, 
I have a lot of respect for people who do this work now. I always give them the benefit of the doubt, unless it's just clear profit mongering. Some yeah. of these biographies you read. Like, yeah, that's right. The, there's books yeah. and there's books. <laughs> and there's yeah. books and then... <laughs> but um, the, the Michael album is a very, very touchy point for many of us. But what I want us to think about is exactly what about it upsets us most. Because for me, it was the reconstruction of Michael Jackson on like the cover, already in the, the, the album art. I was like, what is this? What is this supposed to mean? Mm. It's like an amalgamation of images. And what it does is it reduces Michael's substance to just superficial snapshots. It had no meaning behind it. I think, I don't know if the original concept was like, oh, let's do a cover like Dangerous where, you know, we could talk on that for 400 hours and, and still there'd be undiscovered things. I don't know if that's what they were trying to do, but it came off as something so inauthentic. Yeah. It just didn't make any sense because the whole point of the album was to package the songs that Michael was last working on um, before he passed away. That was the whole point of it. It was meant to be a very contemporary, here's what Michael was doing. But the image represents him during the thriller era. It, it didn't match up with the with what the concept of the album was going to be in my mind, and that's why I didn't like it to start with. Well, that I talk about it in the chapter, chapter. and I, I can't, can't wait, wait to hear your thoughts, thoughts Jamin and Q. I can't wait to I read say, it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do argue that this immortal persona that I talk about earlier in the book. And there's threads like that that go all through the book. Like I've got lots of threads that I pull right through. So it kind of hangs the whole thing together. Is that they're creating almost a sanitized version of Michael Jackson. Definitely. And, and a sanitized version was 24. And he had never been political. Yeah, and he hadn't had vitiligo, so. A great example of them sanitising Michael Jackson posthumously is the removal of the lyric from Hollywood Tonight, she was only 15. Mm. Like they they deleted that. They literally sonically crossed it out for the the song. It's in the demo. It's not in the song. So much editing is going on there. So much editing. There's not an aspect of the production that isn't editing the artist. Mm. So my immediate question is why are they doing that? That's right. That's, and, that's the important question. <laughs> and why are, why are people like eating that? Like why aren't people more strongly aware, aware of what 
of what's going on. I think it comes down to a fear of, um, like, I tell you what, it wouldn't, this sort of stuff wouldn't fly in a lot of other communities. Like, I'm a massive massive fan of Star Wars and Star Trek and, and a lot of other big franchises. And I tell you what, if, if a DVD or Blu-ray was to come out of a Star Wars movie now and there was some kind of fake scene inserted into it that George Lucas never had anything to do with and they just put it in there and said George worked on this in the 70s and it was just they just made it up. If that <laughs> happened... worked on it in the If that 70s. actually happened, like the Star Wars community would just go ape and just just, just destroy Disney. Like it, would just, it wouldn't fly. And Well, it- mentioning Disney, <laughs> this sort of does happen in the Disney uh, community as well with I guess in some ways the the film art but also definitely the the parks yeah especially the original park Disneyland which is the only park that Walt ever built things that he built and contributed to that were absolutely authentic and well researched when something like that is altered and changed oh my god the community like there's a portion of the community that is in uproar and not just because they're purists but because when they come into, say, New Orleans Square and really destroy it by doing really terrible efforts of, um, oh, I can't remember sort of the Art Nouveau style architecture and things like that, it's so poorly done and badly researched. And then they'll take like a beautiful French elevator that Walt installed and then they'll turn it into a, a booth to eat in that only seats one person tucked away in the corner so there's things like that in so many communities. And then there's the not really apologists, but the people that will support anything that comes out. Yeah. And it was exacerbated after the Michael album because the estate and Sony were clearly um, supporting those people that, that wanted to say the art was genuine. And and I would actually go as far, and it might be a bit controversial, but I would even go as far to say that Sony were bullying fans that were willing to stand up against it. Well, it's not new, is it, for corporations to bully the little guy? No. It's not a new thing. Not <laughs> at all. So, so I think that's why you asked earlier about why are people willing to eat it, and I think that's why, because in the three years especially after the album came out, there was a fear amongst fans to stand up for what was right. There really was a big fear. You would go to any of the big online communities, the online forums, and if you said that those songs were fake... Oftentimes, your, your posts would be deleted. You could be banned. The owners made it really clear that you weren't to talk about things like that because they were aligned with the Michael Jackson estate. Like, the community really hurt itself during that time, I think. And, and we're, we're still seeing the repercussions of it now. And it's only really within the last two years, I think, that um, people have been really willing to be very public and very open about um, their disdain for some of the things that have happened. And I hope it's resolved, but hey. <laughs> I like what you say about how other fan communities would not stand for this. Mm. Like even when George Lucas changed his own film, people were just yeah, like, exactly. this is disgusting, throw it in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> They'll throw it at him. Like they were just, and there'd also be public uproar in a lot of situations. Like if you have a great artist, like a I don't know, like a Picasso or something like that, and there's an exhibition, and then there's a fake Picasso pieces on display. It wouldn't just be the artistic community that that stand up against that. There'd be like a public uproar about that, and 
I just feel Michael deserves a lot more than a few loud fans saying this is wrong. He does. He does. Of course he does. But Michael deserved a lot more on a lot of subjects. Yes. Like, I agree. You know, if we go down that line, there's a lot <laughs> of places we could say he deserved better than this and he deserved better than this. However, I am really, really, um, I appreciate the, the work, work of people, people like, like yourselves. Is it Miss Sarova? Vera Sarova, yeah. Vera Sarova. Charles Thompson. I, I respect that those people so much. And I always said, I really believe that all of the fans who care about this, we all need to galvanise and donate to this lady. Because I don't know how she's affording this litigation. And it has to be done. So important, you know, because I don't know how she's funding this. Because there is a corporation that have lots of money behind them. And that's just one person. So I know that she'd definitely be getting a donation from me if she was um, taking them. And if I had some money. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think, I just do think, that it does only take one voice to change a lot of the way. You know, I've been amazed at how people will accept certain things until one person says, this isn't right. And that she takes a stand. It's, it's amazing to me. There was a few things, first of all, I wanted to let you know that there's four aspects of Michael Jackson that you can use if you want to talk about, you know, whether the music is Michael or not. You could talk about agency. So things like composition and um, lyricism and stuff. Attribution. So has it just been labelled with his name? without his agency or was he an agent creating the work and somebody else implemented it posthumously you could talk about authenticity which is something I think you mentioned and adaptation because those four concepts are so crucial the problem I think a lot of people have is that when you say something is fake you need proof. And that, that's such a difficult thing because we were listening to it and we're going, this ain't Michael. This is, this." I instantly was like, who's this? Like, was, is this some guest vocalist? Mm-hmm. Or no? I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, I, I disagree. I actually think that the proof needs to be supplied by the people saying it is Michael, not the other way around. I don't think the onus is on us. I think the onus is on the people saying it is him. I think we should approach every posthumous release from a critical point of view to start with. Um, There's a standard that Michael set and anything after that, they should be striving to achieve that standard. Yeah, like nothing nothing less, nothing less. I don't know like how it works in museums and stuff, but like in auctions and things like that, don't things have to be supplied with um, 
like certification, like evidence of like that, the legitimacy. Um, if you talk the art world, there was a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> false 17th century paintings and uh, even even um, Dali, um, Lati, uh, Dali graphics signed by him, but um, not really made by him. So it is that's a very difficult thing in music because I remember this. Um, whole discussion i do not have the album i don't want the album and i don't listen to it there's some great Same songs on it escape <laughs> oh yeah there's some good possibly, songs on but it. for me uh yeah i'm maybe a bit pure but for me it ended with uh, invincible when there is i, I compared it with classical music there is classical music and there are people who take this music and it's a it's an ensemble I know for a very long time. And they, they take music and they arrange it for their specific ensemble. Mm. So the one who does this takes the composition of, say, Bach, and he arranges this for a completely different set of uh, instruments and his ensemble. He, his name is on top, arranged by, but there's always the original is made by or composed by. So when this whole album came out, and also Escape especially, where people had um, songs of Michael Jackson that were not finished, that he obviously didn't choose to put on a, on a, on a CD, and they start to dabble with it. The problem with it I had was that they say it's Michael Jackson. And I had this whole discussion with Liz and, uh, well, you can read that in the chapter when you, <laughs> when you have the book. And she explained and I, I had, okay, that's, that's, that's all right. But still, when you have music that's lying there, it's not finished. And you take this and you alter it, you make your own ending on it or whatever you do. Then you at least say on the album, this is an adaptation made by blah, blah, blah from not finished songs by Michael Jackson. Mm. And you don't say this is a new Michael Jackson album because it is not a new Michael Jackson album. That's right. Agreed. That's so true. And um, I was I was upset by it because when we when we teach people about Michael Jackson and his songs and his work, of course there are a lot of fans who know his work, and but there every day new fans come to this pack. <laughs> They, they start now listening to his work. Yes. And they buy Escape and they think this is Michael Jackson, but yes. it's not Michael Jackson. And I had a big problem with that because, yeah, it gives a, a false sense of who he, who he was. But Liz can tell you more in this in relation to work of, uh, for instance, Shakespeare and how that worked. And that made a lot of sense 
when she told me that. Mm. Yeah, because nothing that's happened to Michael Jackson is new. That's that's what my research showed me. Like, this has happened. If you look at the opening uh, epitaph on Dangerous Philosophies, I talk about Milton, who they dug up literally for his bones, for souvenirs. The great poet, John Milton, you know, <laughs> and so many great poets in history have been desecrated, truly, by people who should have known better. So it always gives me some, I don't know if it would say comfort, but I feel as though this will not tarnish Michael's legacy the way it could. What it does show is how unique he was in every respect. You cannot recreate Michael Jackson, even if you had the, the parts of Michael mm. Jackson. You can't build a Michael Jackson in a lab. You know, there was only one. And that's emphasised by the posthumous releases. Mm. Yeah. They will never supersede him. I don't believe so. I think the classic work was his work. And the posthumous releases just don't have that. No. They're not classic works. Well, I think they will be forgotten quick. They'll fade away. They fade away. Yeah. Bring it back to the book. For you writing the book together, what were the best sources to go to when writing a book like this, which isn't really like other sort of books out there at the moment? Like what were your primary sources and what was important to be a primary source for you and your research? That's a very good question. Thank you. I had a few. Oh, don't, don't let me forget. forget. We have some Christmas presents for you too. So don't no. let us forget before the end of the. Of course, of course. Oh. Don't don't let us forget. Before okay, I'll put I'll put a note in the show notes now. I'll put that in the bottom. <laughs> okay. Um, things I really liked were, and I know this is topical, the works of Joseph Vogel. <laughs> it always causes consternation. Um, there's a book called Featuring Michael Jackson, Collected Writings on the King of Pop. It's a thin, very dense, very smart book. And I think this is Joe. Yes, Man in the Music is epic. It's massive. It was an epic undertaking. And contextually, nothing comes close, actually, when it comes to the context of the time yeah. and the cultural environment into which those albums yeah. were born. Yeah. But when it comes to analysis things like racism, it was this book that just turns you on to all the double standards when it comes to Michael Jackson. So there's a brilliant chapter where he talks about Dangerous, Nirvana's Nevermind album and the reinvention of pop. And it's so incisive. Gosh, it, it just... He just Because obviously Joe writes for the Huffington Post, he has to put his point in 500 words. 
and they're just tiny little articles, but they make big points. So that's a go-to text. I really loved um, Susan Fast's Dangerous. Yep. That is amazing book. I just wish there was more. (laughs) I wish she'd done all the albums. (laughs) Yeah. So I could have a little set. Um, Then there's... What I love about my work is that I stay very close to Michael. So one of my main sources is Moonwalk. And then my other main source, which I quote all the time, is um, Michael's speech that he gave at Oxford in 2001. I want to do a whole episode with you both about that, by the way, in maybe in season three. We'd be game. Great. (laughs) There's a whole chapter on that that speech in Dangerous Philosophies. Excellent. It's a whole chapter just on that speech. Then there's another book, which is a book that really upset me. So you were talking about things things that make you angry, Jamin. If you want to see what made me angry, there was a book called The Resistible Demise of Michael Jackson. And it came out quite close to his death. And what I was astonished by was how little fan outrage was around for that book. Because it was, in some terms, vicious never even heard There's of it. There's an entire... <laughs> there you go. I think I know of it. Is that the cover, the awful cover that yeah. I've heard you... Yeah, I yeah. do know of it. And I think in some ways the less attention we give to it... The better. Um, the better. And I think that's with a few things out there, the less, you know, like the Conrad Murray book and oh. um, things like that. I think <laughs> fan, fans are just like, I'm not even going to address it. I'm just not going to give it any attention and we'll just hide it in the shadows and hopefully no one will see it. So I think that's what oh. happened with that book as well. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, I had, um, it does make your stomach turn. Some of this stuff. There's also um, a brilliant book called On Michael Jackson by Margot Jefferson. And a lot of people struggle with this one because Margot Jefferson is an academic, so she can write with irony. She doesn't take sides. She doesn't say Michael is guilty or innocent of anything. And she wrote this book around the time of the trial and it was published then. But what she does is she just gets into the heart of the vicious racist culture from which Michael was born. That's The truth is, Michael was born to a nation that had human zoos, you know, human zoos, not long before the 50s. And the racism was vicious. It's a country which had lynchings, you know. So I love Margot Jefferson because she gives you some words you can use. And what I love the most is that she challenges America's sexualization of Michael Jackson as a child. And that's so important 
because what Michael was accused of was actually kind of what the culture did to him as a little boy. You know, he's singing Who's Loving You on stage. At what age? Yeah. And he's been chased mm. and screamed at and grabbed by teenagers and no. adults. No. And made to perform in strip clubs before he was like yeah. even 14 no. or something like. That's abuse. It is, isn't it? That's real. It's cultural abuse. abuse. Yeah. No. Yeah. And we, I feel like we need to always take into account what the culture did to Michael Jackson before we accuse him of anything. So she's really good, really good for that. And a few more. Um, let's just pick up the best of. Uh, I, I have um, so much references in my, my book. Half the book is, is references. A lot. Literally yeah. half. <laughs> half the... <laughs> so it's 130,000 words long. But that word, again, is references. Yes. There's a book called Keep Moving, The Michael Jackson Chronicles yeah. by Armand White. Mm. Um, that's amazing. That's absolutely brilliant. And then, of course, I use loads of um, articles, essays. And um, one other book that I really enjoyed using was The King of Style, Dressing Michael Jackson by Michael Bush. Because the only primary source for costume for Michael. So that's a few books. <laughs> but there's a lot of books. With um, a lot of sort of other books you read on Michael, like um, uh, Mike Smallcombe's Making Michael, Damien Shields' Escape Origins, and Joe Vogel's Man in the Music, a lot of their sources are sort of people who knew Michael and worked with him. But I've seen in your book a lot of your references are more other ac academics or other authors that have written on Michael. Was it a conscious decision to sort of not talk to the people who knew Michael and worked with him? Or did you prefer just to use people who have already done that and put it in their own books? Very much it's about the genre of book I'm writing. Yeah. It's not a biography. It's not a biography. So it would be counterproductive to ask people mm -hmm. about, for example, what do you think about Michael Jackson's various personas and how they are enacted and have morphed and changed over the last 25 years? I think some of them might just be like, what? <laughs> so, oh. what, what's she talking about? I reckon Karen Faye would have some interesting insights into that. But <laughs> Oh, yes. Karen is, um, would be very insightful. Yeah. She doesn't really do many interviews at all, or none really. She doesn't do. I think she did she one in the whole time I've uh, heard of her. I think she was in that documentary that came out after Living with Michael Jackson, um, Take Two or something. She was in that. I'm pretty sure. I quote a lot of people who've given interviews, so I do quote Karen. That's where I got my title, Liberace Goes to War. Oh, wow. I love that title. And dressing Michael Jackson's fashion. And I read and watched a whole ton of interviews 
But the kind of book I'm writing, it isn't about Michael Jackson's life. It's about his art. So artistic analysis has to be between the researcher, the artist, and the art. If you start putting people and their opinions between that analysis, it loses. It gets all confusing. So I had to literally listen to Michael's music, write notes. Read Michael's books, write notes. Study Michael's cover art, write notes. Listen to Michael's speeches, write notes. Listen to Michael's albums again. Watch the short films again. Watch the short films again. (laughs) Write notes, write notes, write notes. And most of my conclusions have never really been concluded before. I don't think anybody's ever written any of these insights before. My book, I can promise, whether someone likes it or not, they'll see things in there that they have never seen before about Michael. So many. Every chapter has new conclusions. And that's another thing about why I didn't, well, I couldn't go the interview route because I had to find new conclusions. Can I just quickly jump in? Could that not be done with some of the art that he, so just for an example, could you not have spoken to Kevin Stay and Vincent Patterson maybe about Michael's performance of Will You Be There at the 10th anniversary of MTV Music Awards to learn directly from them that put the sort of choreography together about some of the very deep meaning and the theatrics behind that of what Michael was trying to convey because they would have been the best people to ask. Obviously, you can't ask Michael, sadly, and heartbreakingly, so no one ever did. But if you went to the people that actually put that together and created it with Michael, would you not have been able to get meaning behind it and from directly from them? The interesting thing about this is I think the question you're asking is about methodology. There's different methods to carry out research, mm-hmm. but I'm a lyricist and an early modernist, so I take what they call a material analysis. So I analyse the material. That's what it means. I'm a cultural materialist. And because of that, my methodology can't include a very wide range of other people's interpretations and opinions because it wasn't the methodology I chose. But I would love to read a book constructed, made of that insight. I think I would would buy it. (laughs) I think there's a a place for both, really. Like, I mean, if, if it's... I think it's really important to speak to and permanently document the words of people that collaborated with Michael Jackson before it's too late, before they're gone. Because I think that's the only way we're going to get primary source historical information about Michael's motivations now that he's not here. But what you're doing is different. It's analysing the art itself. And uh, I think there's an important place for both. We don't have that for so many people in history. That's but right. we've 
done very well studying them. So I took Shakespeare as my model, which I love William Shakespeare. We don't have anything about him as a person. There's nothing. There's no credible biography. They don't have any personal accounts except from what Ben Jonson wrote, which I quote from Michael in this book. Shakespeare's a mystery to us. All we have is his art. But because of that, we focus intensely on Shakespeare's art. We don't have the biography. So all we have is the art, which has actually served to elevate Shakespeare's art. And I felt just my personal approach would be to do something similar for Michael there's in my an, own way. Yeah, and yes. there's another point, academically-wise, interviews. Interviews are always coloured. I have interviews in the book, though. Yeah, you have interviews. But I have interviews with fans. That's something else. <laughs> no, but when you use what you say um it's first of all even if they worked with michael and um, knew him it's not primary source the only primary source you have in that case is michael himself oh no i just uh, sorry but i would disagree with that i would say anyone that was there during the time in the context is a primary source oh well okay but it's from a historian's historical perspective if we're looking at the actual definition of primary source like anybody there involved in the context is like if you're if you're analyzing yeah sorry if if you if you analyze um uh, his work and you use interviews you always have to back it with facts yes uh and that's difficult because there is no archive well there is but we can't reach it and it can often be unreliable biggest issue like like i was just going to say um to your point it's a good point because what happens is as well when you're looking at one particular topic and you speak to multiple collaborators of michael jackson around one particular topic they can even often disagree amongst themselves about an issue yeah yeah so yeah and also um it comes from their memory and memory is uh well, slippery slope. Yeah, very good points. Especially when you when you go in into when you, when you want to put it in academic research. Yeah, scholarly. Research. I loved yeah. making Michael. I did the academic book review for making Michael, and I think Mike Smallcomb has set a very high benchmark. Yes. For the type of biographical, you know, biography one can make from interviews. I think that's the benchmark yeah or how it can be done and how bef- mike's done it before mike i think damien shields did it as well in a brilliant but was it way the whole of michael's life no that was a, no that was a very specific was, uh small chapter and this is yeah well, the, yeah. the original escape tracks i think it is a matter of so. personal opinion as well but um I actually think I personally, and this is not saying one works better than the other, but I myself as a reader, I prefer uh, what Damien does over to over um, career spanning massive biographies. Like, for example, <laughs> Syl Motilla and uh, Mike Smallcomb, they, they talk about like the whole breadth of Michael's career in one book. And I find that the some things like for like Susan Fast, for example, as well, like I feel like 
Michael's individual projects are so deep that they often deserve the attention of a whole book themselves, if you know what I mean. Like I like pieces oh, devoted yeah. just to oh, particular yeah. things mm-hmm. sometimes. And that's what I think Damien does really well. Like even just one of his articles, like the article he did on um, the HBO, what was it? The um, the One Night Only one especially. Night only. Like that's massive. Only, that yeah. could be a book. That's a small book, That, that the size of that article. Yeah. And just the depth in it is, is amazing. But I think there's a place for all of these things. There's some amazing content online, amazing essays and articles. There's a lot of research going on by yeah. individuals. Yeah. That's really publishable. There is. If you call out loud, will it get inside through the heart of your surrender?
This is Mike Smallcombe, author of Making Michael, Inside the Career of Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. My next question I was going to ask uh, directly to Karen, if that's okay, um, and it was if you could talk to us about the artistic inspiration and process around your Steve Payne-like Michael Jackson <laughs> respect <laughs> portrait, which is on the cover, and I had... Um, the Steve Payne version as my like wallpaper on my device for, for about two years because it's such a powerful piece. Beautiful. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, um, when I talked to Liz about, um, uh, about her book, she had this fear of the resistible demise. The resistible demise and that awful, awful, disrespectful portrait on it. And she wanted something more with respect and regal. Well, she talked. She told me about the comparison with um, uh, Shakespeare and Michael Jackson, and that was a revelation for me because I never thought about that in the first place. And um, then I started looking for portraits because she had a specific idea and early modern and um, it needs to be uh, graffure. And I came up with Martin Drushout, who made a portrait of uh, Shakespeare posthumous. So he didn't know what Shakespeare looked like. It's just an idea of Shakespeare. That was interesting too. That blew my mind. That was that no one had actually knew what he actually looked like and they just came up with an image. That blew my mind. Yeah. So, and then she she showed me that, uh, a portrait and that I didn't know who it was. But um, And I saw the portrait on um, uh, Joe's book. The Steve Payne one? No. The, the, you said I showed you the Steve Payne. Yeah, Steve you, one. yeah. 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 But that's why I like the I like that yeah. style. And I like yeah. And I liked that portrait on uh the cover of Men in the Music. The Sam Emerson photo. Yeah, yeah. that is so beautiful and mm. where he looks into the distance. But he is a very very serious Yeah, I, I just felt very drawn to that portrait. And um yeah, I looked into this, started sketching around, uh, looked for specific costumes, and then found also George Daw, who is the original, uh, that's the original painting. You can find that painting in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Steve Payne replaces the he re- face. He replaces the face, and the face is, the what Steve Payne does is not painting, he uh just replaces the face or has replaced the face of many (laughs) with Photoshop. Yeah, you can see that, that it's Photoshop. It's amazing though. And, um, yeah, so I, well, that was for me an inspiration. I started sketching and um, a gravure was a bit too much. That takes so long. So I thought, okay, do it with pen and ink and give it the same style, same kind of um, look 
as the Drushout. It is doesn't look like Drushout, and I'm glad because <laughs> I think mine is 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 nicer. It's more <laughs> has more head is really big. Yeah, it's a bit too big on the on the co- on the costume. But um, that's 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 how they did this. Um, a lot of the times they had a costume and then they placed the portrait in it. You can find that portrait, by the way, in the National Portrait Gallery here in London. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well. Uh, and then I um, made, you can see this, by the way, on the website, michaeljacksonstudies.org slash MJ Respect. MJ Respect. Yeah. There we place the whole story. And um, so the first name of, of this portrait, what we call now the Michael Jackson Respect Portrait, I first named it Shakespearean, MJ Shakespearean portrait, but it's the um, uh, the MJ Respect portrait. And there were several things, because Michael Jackson is was always uh, interested in uh, uniforms and costumes, uh, military uniforms. You can see this often in his, his work, as you know. So it was a very nice combination and it gives him a very regal um, look, very refined. And another one of the reasons was that we traveled a lot and we looked a lot in museums and there you can see that there's so little about high status black. There are black people who are real royalty and have this 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 uh, status it's all white status and the silly thing is is that Michael Jackson was often seen as um, or typified as um, a megalomaniac also in that awful book by the way and um, (laughs) he was one of the greatest artists in the world he dominated the world with his music and has millions of fans so it just didn't seem fair. And we decided that, okay, this book, and that was, by the way, another reason, the Drushout portrait is placed on the first folio of Shakespeare. So that's the first collection. Do I say that right, Liz? The first collection of Shakespeare's books, mm. uh, works. Yeah, and many of Shakespeare's pl- plays were only actually published ever posthumously yeah so and uh, so when uh, Liz started this book I always said to her yeah this is the first folio <laughs> of um, of Michael Jackson uh, so we wanted something that was really um, uh, refined and really with a lot of respect and then I gave, I gave her the portrait it was a gift so it's in her collection and she said, okay, can you send me a high-resolution print? I'm going to ask the, the publisher. And the publisher said, oh, yes, we like it. And they, they took it. <laughs> it's in the book also, um, in, in, its, in, in full, because the, the cover is cut off the head a bit. And, yeah. 
it's an absolutely stunning um, portrait to look at. And I know that you actually have uh, copies of it for sale, don't you, on your website as well if, if people want to buy it. Yeah, I have copies on my website. You can buy prints in several uh, formats, yeah. sizes, yeah, on uh, a good quality paper. Have you done any other uh, portraits or, or um, artworks around Michael yeah, Jackson? Can... Or? Uh, I've done one more, yeah. Um, this is good. You should tell Karen to do this more. <laughs> I told her she should do it. No, it's true. She should do a, a whole series. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. I think about it. Maybe, Maybe it's yeah. good for artists. Yeah. Um, no, I did one more. I was always, um, uh, his, that's a portrait. I, um, I found it somewhere. It's, I think, a concert he did in the 80s. And um, he has this very humble smile because obviously he's standing there and the people are... Uh, uh, shouting and crying for him <laughs> and uh, he looks into you you see that he is looking into all the in the in the public all those people are there for him but he has a smile and the smile is so beautiful and so humble and i wanted to capture that one so i made a drawing of him and um I can send you a, a, a little copy of it please i'd love to see it i haven't seen that one so I just no, love. I, I just love yeah. when artists actually take the time to create pieces based on Michael. I think yeah. it's such a brilliant thing for for legacy and for history that there are pieces out there of Michael Jackson, physical pieces, whether it's a painting, a drawing, a, a sculpture, uh, statue type works as well. It's just like. Musical Michael covers. Does, musical covers, things like that. There's so many things that artists can create and it's Michael so deserves that. Yes. He does. Yeah, he does, absolutely. Like, can you imagine a museum, yeah. like a multi-level oh. beautiful museum? They could fill yeah, it I can, with these pieces. I can imagine that. And um, what I would like, so if there's someone out there who uh, feels like this, no, he made art himself. Yes. Portraits in an amazing way. That should be that should be somewhere in a gallery. Or should we go down this line, guys? Jamin gave yeah. me the book that uh, shows all of those pieces that Michael painted and drew and and made, which I love. Thank you so much for that, Jamin, because I hadn't seen some of them. Um, but yeah, they should absolutely be displayed. It was it was a dream of him. To do that, yeah. One day. And hopefully Diana Walzak's history statue will be right out the front of it. <laughs> or her new, her original piece that she wants to do. Not yeah. the copies. Yeah, no, not the Not the, the, not, the not the dodgy copies. <laughs> Which are fine. I do want to go yeah. to Best in the Netherlands and see that one because that is, you know, that is a piece that has been um, created and it is in existence and, They've refurbished it and it looks great after it's been refurbished. And until I can go see the real Diana one, I do want to go to the McDonald's and get a cheeseburger and go see the other one. It's like because it is a piece and it and, is in existence. Yeah. Is it is it in McDonald's? Where where is this in Holland? I don't uh, know. Uh best. I think it's 
off a highway. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, called yeah, Best, yeah. and uh, the yeah. owners yeah. of the McDonald's, I think Michael donated it to them for the Ronald McDonald charity, maybe something like uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a massive. Um, people people from all over Europe go on like pilgrimages to see it. Um, and there's three T when saw it as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's really cool. That's good for the McDonald's then. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that that moment of the history statue floating down the Thames is so iconic. It's so Michael. It's it so is. fabulous. It is. I Only love he it. could have pulled that off. I loved it. That was that. Don't. Well, I my favorite MJ cast episodes are the specials. I, I love them. They're so good. Thank you. You know the Tom Ezzero one. The um, Dinah Walzak one, um, Mike Mike Smallcombs, you've just the specials are fantastic. And now you're on one. And your Taj Jackson. <laughs> this is yours. Taj Jackson episodes mm. was Taj, yeah, it was Taj, yeah. It was great. Yeah. yeah, they're all they're all very unique, and each one of them feel completely different to record. Like, oh my god, recording Darren Hayes and Taj Jackson. I don't think I've ever been more nervous in my entire life. Like I was literally shaking <laughs> throughout the whole interview. Tom Mesereau, I was more just feeling of just I'm not worthy to even be speaking to this guy. Like he's just so oh, amazingly no. knowledgeable and important in Michael's life. Like imagine if he yeah. wasn't in Michael's life, you know, like. I don't oh. want to imagine that. <laughs> such a horrible Let's thing. Let's just do. not go that way. But he's such a inspirational yeah. man. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, he's now, isn't he um, representing Bill Cosby? Oh, I don't know. I'm Is not he? sure. I think so. Wow. And he I was just like, oh, okay. He doesn't shy away from the, the difficult cases, that's for sure. Elizabeth. Or, no, I know you guys are such a great team and you can both, please, and you have been, which has been wonderful. You both chime in and answer the questions because you are a terrific team together. So it's not just to Elizabeth at all. But I know that this is what your whole book is and you can't sum this up in a short answer. But it's a question I really must ask because I have heard you speak about it on your podcast, Dream Lives On. What makes Michael's philosophies such a dangerous idea. It's the radical nature of them. It's faith, hope, love. And it's the same thing that Jesus was crucified for because it can change the world. And there's a magic, like a world-changing magic in the message that Michael carried with him his whole life. And because it's, so transformational it can be easily perceived as threatening and for me that's what makes michael so dangerous because he he was never he was never afraid to say that love will heal us all and he was right that's the truth karen have you got any thoughts on that uh, no, well, it's exactly what she says. It's um, if you look at it, the whole his idea of 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 hope, love, and um, he did this also in a period. And it's uh, Joe Fogel writes about it very 
very good also in his book Earth Song in a time that no one was interested in it so bringing out songs to heal the world to bringing out um, um, songs that um, we need to care for the environment that we need to care for each other that we need to care for children it's kind of dangerous in a time that people do not want that at all not interested it's the greed is good ethos well so that made him uh, dangerous and look at the society we live in now look at what's happened to america yeah. look what's happened to the uk yeah mm. you know corporations are in the way of us saving our planet yeah it's so illogical that oil companies would have the deciding vote on whether or not we destroy our world but that's what's happened and michael sang earth song that did the short film in 95 yeah but he started that song already in the end of the 80s yeah when he was and, in uh, austria yeah yeah and right up until this is it yes that might have been michael's big comeback in london but he it wasn't the promoters that then brought that message of faith hope and love and healing the world and and the urgency of the environmental catastrophe it wasn't the promoters putting that message into these best of sort of concert tours it was no. michael and he did that michael. right up to the very last minute yeah, yeah. yep definitely he paid a very heavy price for i honestly believe his conviction in wanting to bring that message because i've been learning that the purpose of art is to illuminate and if the art illuminates something shameful often the artist is blamed mm-hmm. and instantly it's shame on you for making such a rotten piece of art but really the shame is not with the artist it's what the artist has uncovered with the art it's the mirror he shows yeah and then you look and you see your own ugly face and then you say <laughs> that's your <laughs> it's true it's true yeah. <laughs> but that's how it works yep yeah and a lot of artists have they oh, yeah but michael in, in michael specifically because he was worldwide so so famous he had the power and he was um, he knew that his message could reach out to so many people that's also dangerous because you step on a little on uh, many toes and people who do not want you to say this yeah so he was brave guys i also want to talk about the topic of shakespeare and Michael Jackson. And I'm pretty sure if we wanted to, we could do a whole sort of show just on this one topic. And in fact, you guys, <laughs> yes, please. you have done it, a whole show on this. We have done it. We didn't do, Sha- we did Shakespeare 400. Yeah. 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 And that was probably, I would say, I, in my top 
top three, top two or three Dream Lives On shows. Oh, come on. Give us your top three Dream, Dream Lives On episodes, please. Hang on. <laughs> let me go to your, I'll go to, where can I see a list? I'll go to iTunes and then I'll be able to see them all. iTunes or michaeljacksonstudies.org slash podcast. Okay. I'm on iTunes. I'm just searching it now. Dream Lives On. Okay. Here we go. So definitely, um, Okay, live from Kingvention. Yeah. That was like that amazing. <laughs> and you guys, that's actually my number one. That's my number one because you took podcasting, Michael Jackson podcasting to a level that that we haven't been able to and that's doing a show in a live situation and it sounded amazing with like the background noise of the people like all talking and getting around at convention and you guys are right there talking to fans. Oh my God. That was like seriously next level stuff. It was so good. Amazing. Uh, I think, yeah, MJ seven meets Shakespeare 400 was definitely another Mm -hmm. massive uh, moment for me when I was like, this is next level. Amazing. And I don't know, I think probably seven albums, seven songs, seven years with Joe Vogel was an incredible discussion. That's episode 10. That was really, that was a really nice long episode too, because I love long podcasts, as you guys can (laughs) (laughs) probably tell. This one's one's three hours. So yeah, they're probably my top three so far. That Joe Vogel one really made me very sad towards the end. Yeah. Because Joe was at the trial. Yeah, he told about it. He talked about it. Um, That was pre-Trump, so we still had hope back then, but we still have hope now, but it's different. Always hope. (laughs) (laughs) Like Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Helm's Deep. So on on the Shakespeare and MJ note, like I know that, so Elizabeth, you've studied studied Shakespeare uh, at university and I can tell that your comparison of these two great, historical artistic figures is something that you think about a lot what what is it about the relationship between these two that fascinates you so much the main thing is that we all think we know them we all think we know them we have a very clear sense in our mind of who Shakespeare is of who Michael Jackson is but when we actually are called to specifics, I think a lot of us struggle, you know. So, and I'm talking about the general population. I'm not talking about hardcore bands and stuff. I'm just talking about generally. Most people you meet will have an idea of who they think Shakespeare is and who Michael Jackson is. But the truth of the matter is, we didn't, we don't know what Shakespeare looked like. We have no visual concept of his face. The only really widely used portrait was created 16 years after he, after he died. And then with Michael, I felt that the same thing had happened, but it was in the reverse. We saw his face so many times in so many contexts with so much baggage that we couldn't see him anymore. Mm-hmm. He disappeared in a sea of images. And I realized that we knew 
it was it was an equal way in which we didn't know both artists yeah but we all thought we did and then with Shakespeare the connection is obviously this incredible body of work just incredible created by a very normal person Shakespeare wasn't royalty he wasn't nobility he wasn't particularly well educated this is natural talent and dedication to his craft Shakespeare was an actor he was a playwright but he did not grow up in a time where he had the luxury of um, an artist's life he would probably have written mostly at night by candlelight and I saw this amazing uh, oneness between that image and Michael, who is also working class, incredibly dedicated, with unparalleled genius and talent. And again, we can make the deepest connection to him through his art as well. But I don't just use Shakespeare. You know, there's a lot of other people and I, one of my biggest ones was Andy Warhol. I found so many similarities between Michael and Andy Warhol as well. Mm. But the other thing I want to state is that early modernists who study Shakespeare, because it's the early modern period, were not allowed to take anything for granted we're not even allowed to think we know anything when we study a text or a play or, an, or a playwright. You have to be forensic. You have to be... It's like the scene of a crime and every piece of evidence must be analysed. And I found that that was a very useful approach to Michael Jackson's studies. Hmm. It gets you past, there's a lot of garbage, <laughs> you know, and that approach, trying to get to the truth of the artistic creativity is really helped by that cultural materialist approach. And I was so fortunate to line up with academics, you know, Joseph Vogel, He's a literature academic and he teaches literature. Professor Marie Plass, who works with him, she particularly has a focus on Shakespeare and Michael Jackson and teaches Michael Jackson studies in university. Was it Merrimack College? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Merrimack College. So the sad part is that the people who may have, you know, what do you, what do you call it? The academic chops, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the ability yeah. to do yeah. this research yeah. have probably never considered Michael Jackson. Mm. And a lot of the Michael Jackson researchers had never considered this methodology, this approach. But if we could all come together in some way, meet in the middle... There are, you know, Isabel Petitjean's doing it at Sorbonne on um, the dangerous cover, and she's just blowing my mind 
with her analysis. And I'm, every time she comes up with something new, I'm thinking, did Michael know this? Yeah, but he did know this. He knew a lot. He knew a lot. He probably knew a hell of a lot more than I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, especially when it comes to art history, he knew a hell of yeah. a lot. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, and it's also about Shakespeare as well, is um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the special features of uh, This Is It. I'm sure you have. But there's a, partic- yes. there's a particular moment in the special features of This Is It where Michael Cotton, who I think was the production designer on This Is It, was talking about what the opening of the show was going to look like. And, of course, you know, Light Man comes out onto stage, dazzling in video information, as Kenny Ortega puts it. And then there was meant to be like an orb sort of suspended in front of Light Man and, and, and Michael was then meant to look into the orb and stare into the orb. And apparently the the inspiration for that moment in the opening of the show was directly from Shakespeare's play Hamlet when um, yeah. Prince Hamlet staring into uh, the, the skull, Yorick's skull, and contemplating his own relationship with Yorick. And that, that to me is like amazing that Michael would have wanted to incorporate that into a rock concert. There was so much of that. Like I always believe... Michael is an early modernist for me. You know, Karen Langford has said there are warehouses of books mm. that, owned, that were owned by Michael and he read them all. She said he read them all. He has notes in every single one of those books and he was always reading. And it's just, this is a man with 17th century sensibilities. Yes, he's a pop star, Big pop star, mainstream. But in another life, Michael Jackson could have been a university professor, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he studied yeah, yeah. so much. Yeah. He loved Da Vinci, Michelangelo. He loved classical and Renaissance art, literature. He had a deep love for the geniuses of history. And he was inspired by them. And there's like, a tr- is it treasure map? You know when you put trails of stuff yeah. mm-hmm. to lead yeah. you to the, yeah, yeah, like Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's, n- he's left us clues in his work. But we'll never really figure it all out. We'll just always find something new. <laughs> And that's so beautiful. And that's yes. why it's so important to, to study him and to do research <laughs> on his work. Oh. This, this question's for both of you, and it comes off what you're just saying. What do you think Michael's most important work or piece is? Ooh. Ooh. Glad you're sitting down. <laughs> this is so hard. It's a really hard question. Karen, you go first. <laughs> Under the bus oh. for Karen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Crash. Um, most important. Most important to him. No, just most important. Okay. In your opinion. Okay. I think that was invincible. Mm. Because there he... I have the feeling that he, after after uh, history and blood on the dance floor, the misery, 
he found a new stage also with his children and I think he wanted to create something and you can hear this in the sound which are partly analog and digital digital sounds he created something new and he he found another way of expression in music that's what I think so you go for Invincible I go for Invincible the most important piece. I do I have to do one or can I put two? No, no, no. no. One. <laughs> one only. Well, a piece <laughs> is different to work, really. Yeah. Like that's why I put both options in there. You know, you could have a musical piece, you could have a visual piece, or you could have like the speech, the Oxford speech is a work, I think. So yeah. you could pick anything, really. I wouldn't say the Oxford speech, but it came as a close second or third. But for me, it would, it's Moonwalk. Because something about that book, that autobiography, is haunting, reading it posthumously. We get a very clear sense of who Michael was at 30 years old. And as I am approaching 30... It's like I found a real new level of respect for Michael Jackson because he'd already lived so much mm. at that time. And the book is so personal. People say that it didn't get, get into like the bits they wanted to know, but I think it's all in there. He talks about the deepest parts of his psyche his emotional life his relationships i think that's the closest we could ever get to michael's own voice his feelings about life and the world even his love for children it's all in there and i just found when i was writing dangerous philosophies that was the one book that i could turn to if I wanted to talk about his opinion on most things, it was in there. So it would be Moonwalk. Thank you for answering, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. And now the, uh, the question that we always ask our special guests every time we have a guest on the show. And we might start with Karen again. How do you feel Michael should be remembered? As an enormous artist. And not just a musician, a filmmaker, a, a, a dancer, but much more. He was an intellectual and um, he was a visual artist. He was a filmmaker. Yeah, he was, a, he was an artwork himself. <laughs> and um, I think that's, that's, that's the most important thing. And with that, I think what we are doing with the journal and the courses and writing and especially what Liz did with her book that will make him or give him that legacy so people can remember him and can have the ability to study him and yeah. to get more in-depth in who he was as an artist. Thank you. And Elizabeth? I really resonate with what Karen said about as an artist 
and everything that entails. You know, Michael Jackson was a consummate artist and a mortal man. And that makes him a great teacher of us all because great art teaches you something about the way you perceive the world or how the world works or how the world could work. And he encourages us to not just sit and watch injustice, but to do something in our own way Mm. to tip the scale. But he always taught us to do it with love and faith and hope. You know, Michael would never let us give up, even if we feel like we're in the face of defeat. So for me, he's a great artist, a consummate artist, but also a great teacher of life. Love it. Love it. Well, guys, thank you so much. I think, uh, yeah, they were two very good answers and we'll make sure to include those in our Christmas special as well. Um, (laughs) We always do a little kind of, uh, what's the word, where we get everybody's answers to that one question and put them back to back. Like an audio montage. Montage, yeah, that's it. That's it. Very, very wonderful answers. So thank you. And and again, uh, we want to thank you so much for coming on our show to talk about uh, the dangerous philosophies of Michael Jackson. And so much more. Yes, yes. We went into such great depth. So thank you. And would you be able to tell the uh, the audience, especially where to, to find you guys online, how they can find you and where they can buy the book? Ah, okay. Well, let me first say where they can find the journal. The journal is michaeljacksonstudies.org. And where you can find the book, Liz? You can find signed copies of the book at onlineartseducation.co.uk slash shop. And you can buy the book from all the major retailers, especially places like Amazon, um, to get hold of it and to study Michael with, with us, us you can go to onlineartseducation.co.uk you can go to my personal website elizabethamissu.com and get a completely free online course on dangerous philosophies and you can also go to Karen's website karenmerix.co.uk and there you can buy uh, a print of the portrait, the Michael Jackson respect portrait. And that's Karen with an I, K-A-R-I-N-M-E-R-X. And you guys are also on Twitter as well, though, hey, and social media. Yeah. Ah, now, the social media. So we're on Facebook, at facebook.com slash Michael, Michael Jackson, Jackson Studies. studies. And we're on Twitter at the handle MJAS29. You can also find our podcast. How many things do we have? A million. <laughs> <laughs> so many things. All of the things. Uh, we have all the things. Uh, MichaelJacksonStudies.org slash podcast. Podcasts with an, with an extra S. Yeah. And that's all the things. 
for now. <laughs> we'll put. We'll also include all of those links in the show notes, which you can find at themjcast.com. And I'll quickly do our social media stuff now also. So if you are a new listener, you can find us across social media, such as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and Tumblr as The MJ Cast. If you do a search, we're over at YouTube, for youtube.com forward slash plus the MJ cast. And we always look forward to your correspondence via email. You can reach us at the MJ cast at iCloud.com. You can subscribe to the show across Stitcher radio. We're on iTunes and Android podcasting apps. And that is free to subscribe. And then you can set it up so that it downloads automatically whenever there's a new episode. You never miss any episodes. And then you can set it up so once you've listened to it, it automatically deletes and it doesn't build up in your library and take up memory of your device. So that's a very easy thing to do. That's right. So connect with all of us online. There's never enough MJ podcasting you can do. There's the great The Dream Lives On uh, MJ podcast that Karen and Elizabeth do and then also Moonwalk Talks from Jenkins uh, and then check out as well our future episodes. We've got a couple more coming out this year. So enjoy your MJ podcasting. We really hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode with Elizabeth and Karen. Thank you, ladies, again so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having us on the show. Can we just have one moment? Of course. Absolutely. Of course. Thank you. We don't know when you're airing this. So we wanted to say we've got 10% off all Michael Jackson courses with the coupon code HOLIDAYS. And we'd like to give you both a Christmas present from us. So, Jamin, my gift to you is the complete... Teaching Michael Jackson Studies online course. Oh, wow. And Q. Q. <laughs> I want to give you my uh, official art of Michael Jackson course. Ooh. Which goes with your Kunstwerk von Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. That's so special. Oh. Thank you. Yay. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to be educated. <laughs> <laughs> Q is going to university. <laughs> <laughs> We've got our promotion. Thank you. From the third to the... Um, 24th of December. So, yeah, this will be out before the 24th for sure. Cool. So it goes from 3rd to 24th. Yeah. And if you struggle at all with Kunstwerk, let me know. And I'll throw in introduction to Michael Jackson studies as well, because some people need it to step up to the extension courses. Mm. And that's just a big hug and kiss from us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I feel all warm and fuzzy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. So there we are, listeners. Great. And listeners, there's uh, great opportunities for you there. Definitely. Wow. Thanks, ladies. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Alrighty. Well, I think uh, MJ fans have a lot of studying to do over the holidays then by the sound of it, including <laughs> uh, including Aussie listeners who also um, not only will have access to the uh, the uh, MJ Studies courses, but uh, Brad Sundberg is bringing his seminar to Australia as yeah. well. Yeah. Have you guys been to one of his um, London sh- seminars at all? I couldn't this no. year. It was such no. a shame. We had to just sort stuff out for the journal couldn't get away 
Well, you I had was a really big sad. Year. You did have a big year. It was everything was going on. I was like, yeah. please, Brad, come back. But what he I will. did to make myself feel better was listen to your special. Oh, okay. good. <laughs> it's like a mini little taste of what a seminar would be like. So, yeah, but, yeah he's coming He'll to Australia back. for the first time, which is Have very exciting. It's not I haven't yet. For the first time. Oh, yeah. you're, you're going. Well, yes, I'll be going to the Perth. So there's three cities that Brad will be going to. He's going to Melbourne and then across to Perth and then Sydney. The Melbourne dates are January 7 and 8, Perth dates January 10 and 11th, and the Sydney dates January 14th and 15th of uh, 2017. So two-day seminars are available. And, yeah, head to – tickets are strictly limited and they need to head to in – the studio with oh, I've cut the website off. This I think it's photo. just in the MJ, studio with MJ.com. With MJ. Okay, in the studio with MJ.com to get the tickets to those seminars. So Aussie listeners, this is something that you should be definitely uh, doing what you can because oh. yeah, unlike London where he's done a couple, this is the first time to Australia. Yeah. Uh, which I know Brad's very excited about coming down under. So who knows when he will come back down under because this is a huge trip for him. But, yeah, do not miss this opportunity if you get the chance. Another avenue for education and and learning about behind the work and behind the scenes and behind the creation of uh, these amazing things that Michael's left us with. It's amazing. Everything I've read, heard, people I know have been, have said it's absolutely amazing. It's just amazing. Very looking forward to it. All right. Well, there's some exciting things coming up for MJ fans this Christmas. Stay tuned to the MJ cast for our upcoming shows, uh, including our our 2016 Christmas special. But until then, enjoy the fortnight. Enjoy the fortnight ahead, and keep Michaeling. It's all for love. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in, listeners. We'll hear from you soon. Michael on. Bye. Bye. I'm Elizabeth Amisu, co-host of The Dream Lives On. And I'm Karen Merix, also co-host of Michael Jackson's Dream Lives On. And you're listening to The, the MJ, MJ Cast. Cast. <laughs> we can't say it at the same time because it's... It sounds awesome. <laughs> I love it when you guys do things like that at the same time. There was one episode I remember you guys doing where you were like, we're going to be talking about Michael Jackson's and then you both say, dangerous, at the same time. It was, <laughs> it was really cool. Q, we need to start doing that, okay? Sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Q's> like... <laughs> it's a bit hard when I can't see you. Oh, yeah, true that.
MJ Cast.